guess what? Oh, I'm sorry. You ruined my plans? Now you all have mutant aids. And it's <laughs> right, gonna kill yeah. the little girl first. X-Men, X-Men. In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men. Welcome to Cerebro, the X-Men podcast where a homo and his friends dig deep into the history of Homo Superior. I'm your host, Connor Goldsmith, and with me today is returning guest Anthony Oliveira, the only current writer at Marvel Comics who knows what I look like naked. Whoa. How are you today? <laughs> I'm very well. How are you? I'm good. I'm good. I'm fully vaccinated, so... Congratulations. Thank you. It's going to take... I'm still, like, cooking, right? So, like, I just sort oh, of... Oh, like, currently... Yeah, like my body is doing whatever. So I was thinking about it as I reread Executioner's song, right? Because there's yeah, all if of the that techno organic virus right. erupts <laughs> from your shoulder. <laughs> I was just very much like they were like, it's invading every cell. I was like, ooh, just like my antibodies. That panel where they crack the code and it's the full hackers. You are smart, but I am smarter. Of Stripe so Space is so good. Good. <laughs> I had not read Executioner's Song in probably 20 years, something like that. So it was a fun revisit, I have to say. It is It is the absolute... Uh, we're talking about strife, everybody. By oh, the yeah. Way. So to go back for a second, <laughs> Tony has returned to Cerebro to talk about strife. Who is strife, you might ask? Strife? You might. Strife? <laughs> you ta- you're talking about that son of pain? You're talking about that father of the morning fire? The chaos bringer, <laughs> crown prince of mutant kind? Strife The is, master of time? <laughs> Strife is the evil clone of Cable, Nathan Christopher Summers, although if you were to ask Strife, it's Says the other you, way yeah. around. Right. Yeah. <laughs> Strife is an iconic villain of the 90s. He has popped up occasionally since to cause problems on purpose, but otherwise right. is not really ever had as major a showing as he did then. He was the leader of the Mutant Liberation Front. The fact that he had the same face as Cable was a big reveal. He did all kinds of horrible stuff to Cable in their shared future in the Ascani timeline, which is why it was good that you all listened to the Rachel Summers episode first. You did, didn't you? Because you, you might want to go back. You might want to go back and listen to that <laughs> first if you haven't, because that's all her stuff in her lesbian commune future as the spiritual leader, Mother Ascani. Point is, Strife is a very confusing character, and we haven't done a Cable episode yet. You know why we haven't done a Cable episode yet? Because there's a Cable solo book that's ending soon, and we're going to do the Cable episode after that solo ends because there's a lot of questions right now as to what the hell's going on in that book, which is a great book. I didn't want to do a whole episode that then got fucked up right. by potentially a twist. There are some like quantum irresolvabilities still Correct. spinning on that one, which we will talk about probably. We will. We'll talk about it in this episode and you'll understand why I want to wait on a Cable episode until August. But in the meanwhile, between Rachel and Strife, I think you'll get something of a sense of what's up with Cable and what's his deal, which is one of the more <laughs> confusing things in all of X-Men. So it feels like we're kind of giving an on-ramp to Cable. Yes. Also, like, all the bullshit is completely ejected when you do a Strife episode, because he really is the better of the two. <laughs> In terms of, like, <laughs> overall readability of all the material, yeah, I would agree. Well, and just like as a... Ca- I've 
Connor did not want to do this episode when I initially That is it. not true. That is I heard not... you no-sell it in the Rachel episode. Where that is not true. It was not a no-sell. I just thought it was funny because people weren't going to be expecting it. I was like, returning guest Anthony Elder yeah. will be here to talk about Strife. Yeah, I wanted to do this one in my first one, too. Which we mentioned in that episode. And I have no problem with talking to you about just about anything, darling, but particularly about Strife, because I knew it would be fun. But as episode eight of the podcast, it seemed a right. little ostentatious to do Strife. Yeah. Iceman, is, uh, Iceman is like easily my favorite hero among the X-Men. And now, on the strength of, literally, my podcast, you get to write an Iceman story for the upcoming Pride <laughs> issue. I'm taking full credit. Yeah, that's 100% you, baby. Uh, <laughs> I mean, Iceman is my... I, I talked about this a lot in the Iceman episode, which you should listen to. It was very good. It is the top most listened to episode of this podcast. Well, he's great. And our chemistry is unkillable, Connor. <laughs> and many things have attempted to kill it, but nothing has ever succeeded. <laughs> But Strife was my my first comic book. Strife was the villain. The first comic, my first X Men comic I ever bought was X Force sixteen, which was smack in the middle of the Executioner song. And the reason I bought it is because Executioner song was like, well, we should talk about the nineties, which you've been reticent to talk about. Well, mostly because it it was the period that was coming out when we were kids that I rejected. Yeah, you know, yeah, I for, didn't I mean, like it. For some good reasons. And I had the I had the material to like, you know, because of my dad's collection, I was able to go back and just read everything from 1975 to 1989 instead. And so I just right. did that. <laughs> right. um, yeah. So, so maybe it's know. worth I mean, actually, it's so it's so indelibly tied to strife as a character and as an aesthetic that it's kind of worth thinking about that like right like one of the things that happens in 88 and 89 is i mean i'm i came out of like a formalist background so it's like the old marxist in me is like how does the means of production affect the art and it's like comics became a speculator's market mm -hmm. comics became a thing that you collected because the cover was good and because the art was good and because it had cool foil on it and so as a consequence the artists started really driving the medium, yes. right? Like in a very explicit way. Like even while we were reading the New Mutants comics that Strife's first appearances are in, you can see the way the credits change, right? Yeah. It's like story by Jim Lee, story by Rob Liefeld, script by Chris Claremont. Which is why Claremont quit. Yeah, yeah. Claremont is like, no way. Like no. this is not... And you see it, you can feel the, I, you have, I have to admit, especially rereading these issues, you can feel the creakiness where sometimes the writer is like, I don't know what this is supposed to be a picture of. Well, <laughs> my favorite is because you know it was coming Marvel Method art first. You can tell an Executioner's yeah. song. And so there's a great page. I took a picture of it like while I was reading because I have the Executioner's song hardcover, which I have to note, because you reread this also, there is a scene in Executioner's Song, at least in the hardcover, where Stevie Hunter is a white woman. And I was like, is that a recolor problem in the hardcover? Or was it like that in the original issue? And I feel the need to go back and check because the hardcover definitely is recolored, but that's a wild mistake to make. They're like, Ms. Hunter. And she's like, hello. And it's this white redhead. I was just like, that's not correct. This is what happens when Jim Lee relaxes your hair because he doesn't right. know how to draw black women's right. hair and doesn't care to learn. <laughs> 
the bottom line is, yeah, there's this panel where I think it's Reaper is like about to kill Quicksilver and Gambit or something like that. And Psylocke psychic knifes him with the focus totality of her psychic powers. And then she does this like ninja pose in kind of a splash panel. Right. And Boom Boom says, nice pose, Psylocke, but he can't hear you. Like, (laughs) and that felt to me specifically like Nisiesa making fun of the art that he had clearly received and was then scripting. He does that a lot. I think that, and this is what I was getting at with the whole Strife comes out of the aesthetics of the 90s. I mean, first of all, if you haven't seen a picture of him, please look up a picture of Strife. Google him right now. Pause the podcast and Google Strife X With a Y. With a Y, because you need to understand what he looks like. He looks like a man made of knives. He has right. pokey metal nipples on his metal suit. Right, that sometimes light up, yeah. A ghastly cape that billows behind him and his hat is it's like if a jack Kirby. i've called them kirby hats on the podcast it's uh-huh. like if one of those hats were made purely of knives and right. just was as <laughs> wide as possible yeah he literally it's impossible to imagine him moving like it really is and like well he, thank god he's an omega level telekinetic <laughs> exactly which has since been retconned out but he move? was at the time right yeah it's like because oh, he's pr- propelling himself forward uh, but this is to my point, like, so Claremont leaves. He can't deal with this working condition. He calls their bluff. They basically, they marginalized him until such a point where he was like, all right, Bob, take this job and shove it. And then Bob was like, shit, what do we do now? Exactly. But Nicieza fr- thrives under it. That's what I love. And it's to that thing you were just describing. Like, um, my work is a lot about, like, Baroque aesthetics. And mm-hmm. something happens with Nicieza's style. I loved listening to your interview with him where... Wasn't that fun? He's a hoot. Oh, so good. And, like... Executioner's Song, which is the crossover that Strife is the main villain of, really shows Nicieza's strength as a writer because he's receiving these images and rather than trying to process them and being resentful of them, he creates this very self-aware, like radioactively purple prose style. Well, it reads like Claremont. That's what's really fascinating. (laughs) It, It has, I mean, it's not, but it is. At the very least, it feels like someone attempting to write in a Claremontian style. Right. It's conspicuous because reading through it, and it is much like Ten of Swords now, a crossover that goes chapter by chapter through. It's not like tie-ins or anything. It's like it is chapter one is an X Factor, chapter two is an X Force. I'm I'm those aren't actually correct, but you get what I'm saying. Right, right, right. And it just continues straight through, except that that means that the individual chapters are written by Nisiesa, Peter David, and Scott Lobdell. Right. And there is a wild tonal shift each time you switch writers, and you can tell. Right. It's Peter David at his most sarcastic. It's like... Yeah, he, Peter David's just like having all of the X-Factor characters clown on each other and like Val Cooper <laughs> go like, you boys! Right. And then... <laughs> Nisiesa is writing this very sort of Claremont-inspired, Baroque is the right word for it. Like these very ornate operatic sentences, monologues, lots of narration that's really operatic. Strife talks like a Claremont villain. Yeah. In a way that a lot of 90s characters did not. Yes. He has that grandiose... He's the end of something. He really is the end of like that 80s glam kind of the Claremont style. Yeah, and he's cloaked in this 90s aesthetic. (laughs) He's the Phantom of the Opera. Yeah, it's like very... Yeah, but he definitely feels like he owes to, for instance, the Sylvester design for Mr. Sinister who pops up in this story as well. So it's that kind of like super glam. I I said in the solicits for questions for this episode, Strife is the Summers who looks 
Camp straight in the eye. Like he knows yeah. exactly. He looks what like he's, he's doing. on the way to the Met Gala. Yes, Absolutely. at all times. Yeah. <laughs> right. So, the um, the thing about Executioner's song, and I do love that it is Executioner. Yes, X dash C. Well, and also there's a character. This is what's fucking confusing. There's a character called the Executioner who appears in X-Men comics, but is not created until after Executioner's song. So he doesn't appear in this. So I always thought when I was a kid, because I didn't read this as it was coming out, because, again, I had kind of rejected the 90s at that time. And I also am like five when this drops. Because I'm a couple years I'm younger nine. than you. Yeah. yeah. I think I'm nine when Executioner songs on the shelves. I didn't follow up on it until much later. And I had always just assumed because there was a character called Executioner who emerges a year later that it was about him and Strife. And then when I finally read it when I was like 11 or something, I was like, oh, he's not in this at all. Yeah. The Executioner <laughs> of the title is kind of Strife, but also kind of Cyclops, which is amazing. Yeah. It's the a, the right. climax is a moment... Which we'll get to when we talk about Strife's character himself. But, like, Strife forces Cyclops to replay a tableau from the past. Yes. And may- he makes the same shitty decision he made the last time. <laughs> is the executioner, right, is part of the thing. But it is executioner and not executioner because they argued about this in the office. And Tom DeFalco won. And Nicias has said it was just Tom's New York accent would not allow for anything but executioner. <laughs> Right. So it was the executioner <laughs> song. doesn't work. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but as Fabian said on his episode of this podcast, he wrote the entire outline for this story in one week because this was right after Jim Lee and Wills Portacio and Rob Liefeld left Todd McFarlane. Marvel and Todd, everybody, all of the image guys bounce that's the climax of the problem we were just talking about right like is all these artists realize they're governing the industry and making nothing right so they go off and start image and marvel has to very quickly be like we need to do a pull out all the stops event that makes people remember what makes marvel so great but it's right after those (laughs) artists had pushed out claremont and simonson so now there's no one to write the x-men is the problem (laughs) so amazing so they tap (laughs) Labdell, David, and Nisiesa to be sort of the three new writers on the X-Men. Two mixed results. That first run of Peter David's X-Factor is beloved. I think Nisiesa's X-Men is pretty strong overall. I am very mixed on Labdell's X-Men, mm. although I do like the gay Iceman stuff that he does. But not my not my cup right of, you know yeah. yeah i mean this is really for better or worse this is the 90s launching in a real way yeah um, and at this meeting they're like okay we need to bring out our biggest villains and they're like who are they well magneto is one but we're not going to use him because we're saving him for fatal attractions. we're saving him for fatal attractions right so they bring in their other top three x-men villains at the time which is apocalypse mr sinister and Strife, who history has completely... Right. Who's new, yeah. but has been a villain for every character so far. Yes. Um, in an undefined way. Like, he appears... He's just been mysterious and a man made of <laughs> knives who pisses people right. off. Like, there's no... He's the chaos bringer. He shows up and, like the untitled Goose Game, causes problems on purpose. That is all right. he does. <laughs> he leads the Mutant Liberation Front. They are terrorists. He brainwashes Rusty and Skids, the new mutants who weren't popular enough to make it to X-Force, and then just kind of 
futzes around doing yeah. nothing in particular. They're kind of the Brotherhood if the Brotherhood just did not like shit around. Yeah, well, they actually have a coherent politic, which is why it's so sad that their leader is completely bullshitting them the entire right. time. <laughs> yes, exactly. Like, Strife yeah. doesn't give a shit about mutants. Yeah, this is great. All. And in fact, turns out to be one of the greatest until, until Wanda Maximoff rolls yeah. in. Yeah. Until Wanda pops in, Wanda and Cassandra take the crown. But yeah. before Cassandra and Wanda get their genocide on, the mutant genocidaire of the millennium, certainly of the 20th century, let's say, is Strife, who, yeah. if you're not familiar with the end of Executioner's Song, creates and releases the legacy virus on the world as his great <laughs> revenge. <laughs> As his final fuck you. Yeah. yeah. It's like, guess what? Oh, I'm sorry. You ruined my plans? Now you all have mutant aids. And it's <laughs> right, going to kill yeah. the little girl first. Oh, all right. That Ilyana episode breaks my heart so much. And I mean, with the tastelessness of the legacy virus as a, as a metaphor is what it is. But to me as a kid, it was like, I mean, I literally grew up in like a very Christian conservative household. And it right. was one of the first times. The, the fact that it is so one-to-one and so tastelessly obvious what they're talking about in did some weird work for me as a kid where it's like oh like the i i love iliana and iliana is sick and it's obvious that this virus is not affecting people the way that the people around me are saying it is so it is what it is but um yeah it is again like the 90s are born before your eyes here right i have always hated the legacy virus storyline particularly because i felt that it was used in a manipulative way, first of all. Like, that uh, Ileana issue is... It is it is melodramatic. Unbelievably like, yeah. <laughs> melodramatically manipulative. It was also just used to junk a lot of interesting characters. Right. I'm more receptive to it, actually, after talking to Fabian on this podcast. Because when you know how much he was trying to do a real HIV storyline right. in his other book and was facing so much opposition... The legacy virus, I don't believe, was him. I think that was Labdell. But the idea that, okay, we're going to do a, a sci-fi version because there's a crisis and we need people to talk about it. And if they won't, if the corporate won't, because Fabian said, he's like, editorial was fully on board with me doing whatever HIV storyline I wanted to do. It was the corporate like Perlman's guys that were just right. not going to allow that. So the legacy virus is a way to sneak it in. And yeah. it's not a coincidence which characters are chosen to die of it, right? Like, Infectia is the sexually promiscuous right. girl. Well, and then Pyro, Pyro. is, Pyro is <laughs> gay. The Py kids have forgotten how gay Pyro used to be. Everyone seems to have forgotten how gay yeah. Pyro used yeah. to be because Pyro is a <laughs> gay character. Pyro was, like, flaming. Like, it's literally... That was the joke, but, like, right? Like, that's... <laughs> he wore little ascots yeah. and was, like almost a Paul Lind character. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. His backstory was that he was a romance novelist with a female right. pen name. <laughs> right. And he and Avalanche are always together. And it's a lot like Mystique and Destiny and Black Tom and Juggernaut. Claremont exactly. was allowed to imply homosexuality with villains much more than he was allowed to imply it with his heroes. And he implied it with a lot of his heroes, but he implied it more overtly with the villains because you could get away with that and that goes all the way back to the Hayes code right like you can yeah. get away with gay villains the effeteness of his power too right like he doesn't create the fire he doesn't he create the, the fire. fire he just sculpts and controls it <laughs> exactly. so like yeah I quite enjoy the uh the current pyro in marauders but I was thrown by the telepathic fantasy where he was hot for Jean because I was like no pyro is gay 
Yeah, the face tattoo is also kind of confusing. The face tattoo, I get that because that he's like, I'm going to die at some point. Why not? Like, you know, that's what that was. That that I thought was funny. I just, it to me, I just feel like, especially just rereading 80s stuff recently, which I've been doing for the show. He's just so gay in that. Right. In his Hawaiian shirts in that one brotherhood. Yeah. And like just the little, the little like almost pseudo Victorian, like Oscar Wilde things he wears sometimes. Anyway, I digress, but I do think that that should come back. It's a little muddled (laughs) now by that other gay pyro they invented. I know. (laughs) So it's like they're stressing this is the straight pyro. And I'm like, there never was a straight pyro. That's not right. So, we'll get to all that someday in a Pyro episode, I guess. Right. So, Strife comes in in New Mutants. Strife runs the MLF, which is, again, like, very politically active. Like, it is bombing, like, mutant abortion centers, right? By which we mean, like, centers where they're aborting mutants. Right. Which Tempo's backstory is her dad is running one of those clinics, right? This is why Tempo is one of the best characters of the 90s and why I really want her back. I really want her on that X-Men team. I know she didn't win the vote, but they should just fudge it and put her on the team anyway. (laughs) Tempo's whole deal is that her father is an anti-mutant scientist who is like aborting mutant children or whatever. He's running like a clinic where you can have the test done and you'll know if your kid's a mutant and then the choice is yours. And Strife's MLF is like, fuck you. And Tempo Tempo tries to warn him (laughs) and is like, listen... And it's never said explicitly, it's never said explicitly that it's her father, but it's Dr. Tucker, and we know that her name is Heather Tucker. And Strife heavily implies, because he only goes easy on her because she's beaten so badly. Yeah. And he's like, well, we'll just have to chalk this up to a mistake. (laughs) Yeah, but she tries to warn her dad that the MLF is coming to assassinate him, and he blows her off because he's a bigot. And uh, the MLF kills the shit out of him. Right. It's a pretty great story. (laughs) (laughs) And that's when she starts going like, maybe this isn't the team for me. They are surprisingly robust as a team, too. Like, they really were, like, forearms on that. Like, a lot of them are still around in weird ways. Wildside is still around. Sumo and Kamikaze aside. There's some racist problems in this story. We could have done with it. Dragoness is confusing to me because I think she's white. They forgot she was Asian is what happens. Well, her name is Tamara Kurtz. (laughs) Which seems like an Apocalypse Now reference, right? So I feel like maybe she's like a GI's daughter or something. She's, yeah, she's definitely on the... That's the other thing about the MLF is it's huge, right? They have like four right. soldiers. It's not like an eight-person team. She might be half Asian, but then it's confusing because it says her parents were exposed to the radiation at Hiroshima, and that's where her powers came from. Right, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Which is also, by that point, not really how mutation worked anymore. Yeah, it is how Sunfire was. The no prize that I have is that nuclear radiation can activate latent mutant genes right. in utero, which is why they're the children of the atom, because you see more of them as nuclear power grows, right? Right, which is also the background for Xavier, right? Xavier was, It's yeah. the background for all the 60s X-Men, because in the 60s, it literally was just nuclear power triggers pregnancies to turn into mutant pregnancies. Right. That was literally it. Xavier's father literally worked on the A-bomb. I think Beast's dad? Beast's dad worked in a nuclear power plant, was exposed to high-dose radiation. Right. There's something (laughs) about, like, a plant near someone else's home. Like, it's all that. Bard College maybe has a reactor on campus. (laughs) Actually, someone wrote in, a, a listener wrote in to suggest something that had not occurred to me. 
I'm sorry, I forgot your name, but it was a great note. If you look back at the 60s material where Magneto is trying to nuke things, it is possible to read those not as him trying to kill people, but as him trying to activate mutants because that... <laughs> the mutant machine. Is, from at the, the time, yeah. right, what you thought it would do, right? So, you know, just a thought. But yeah, Strife pops up in the New Mutants toward the end of the original run of the New Mutants. This is after Rob Liefeld... clearly a Liefeld design, yeah. Yeah, this is after Rob Liefeld has come in and very quickly at age like 24 becomes this hotshot star artist and strong arms Louise Simonson out of Marvel, like gets right. her fired because right. she doesn't like all his storylines and he doesn't like any of her suggestions and he decides, no, it should just be me. It's just a weird transition, right? Yeah, he doesn't keep very many characters. Um, it becomes about, well, Cable is kind of his great creation in this and the idea behind cable is that he's basically he's i mean it's very clear he just watched terminator right he's like, terminator. what if the terminator was john connor is basically the idea in executioner's song his face gets blown off and literally he has a terminator face under it which is yeah, like not right. not something that's been repeated since as far as i can remember yeah well this is again part of the later retcon for now he's just a cyborg from the future right yeah but he's assembling this paramilitary organization which is what x-force initially is and it's kind of been ever since which is like they deal with the problems that xavier's school is like too cowardly to deal with they'll show up they'll kill a bunch of people in the same way that the mlf is like an escalation of the brotherhood of the brotherhood right then x-force is the escalation of the x-men right um, and then the the book, I mean, <laughs> the hilarious thing about this is it feels like Liefeld was like cursed by a witch to never create a straight character because all his <laughs> creations have gone on to become to be like, so gay. <laughs> Strife yeah. included, but like Richter is in there. Well, Richter, he doesn't create. Richter's not him. That's a Simon. He, turn, he basically turns him into what you now recognize as Richter. Shatterstar is in there. Deadpool is in there. Like <laughs> anyone who's on a Marvel's queer character list, there's a lot of yeah, yeah, to, yeah. His, to his annoyance. Right? Well, and Cable, most pointedly, to the point where Fabian said on our episode, like, oh, Cable's from the far future where I don't think they are even really worried about that stuff. Right. You know? <laughs> he's from thousands of years in the future. I think he's probably fucking plants, like, was his right. <laughs> position. And then he wrote the Cable and Deadpool book, which basically portrays them as a couple. Right. I mean, Liefeld can't really catch a break on that front, but part of it is because his characters are so hyper-masculine to the yes. point of it becoming so ridiculous that it's homoerotic. It's like exactly. 300. He has that yeah, Frank Miller that problem. Of, like, what if you listened to too much Def Leppard? That glam moment at the end of the 80s where Iron Maiden has that same like kind of hair energy. metal. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but here it is even taken further to like all of these Spartan warriors, right? Like it's all it's that kind of stuff. But then of course they all vibe sexually with their brothers in arms because that's the whole Spartan warrior thing. And that is his his eternal cross to bear, I guess, is that just every <laughs> every X-Men character he created just turned out real gay. Feral is gay. Fe right. Like, yeah. I'm just thinking, I'm like, they're all gay now. Uh, but then he's gone and we're left with this toy box that uh, Fabian turns into the brilliance, in my opinion, of A really good run on X-Force. And yeah. the first big salvo of that is Executioner's song. I will say... I kind of hate Executioner's Song. It, right. is, it is the kind of event 
that is my least favorite kind of event. Events that are about action figures getting smacked together. Sure. The quintessential version of that in the more modern era to me is Second Coming, which has some good moments in it, but is mostly action figures being slammed together. And that's just never my... It's just not my my yeah. preference. I love events like Inferno, Fall of the Mutants, Mutant Massacre, which has a lot of death in it, but isn't. It's more about the emotional right. horror yeah. of it. I loved Ten of Swords much more than I necessarily thought I would at the outset because the idea of a tournament arc was really boring to me. And when, of course, it all goes pear shaped, you're like, we're on other world. Nothing is going to be that straightforward. <laughs> right. I was like, thank God, this is exactly right. what I wanted. I'm the same. I don't care for moments where it's like, oh, the the Avengers are fighting the X-Men. Like, right. I hate X Avengers versus X-Men. I yeah. hate. And so the problem with Executioner's Song is that the fully the first half of it is just the three teams of X-Men fighting each other. Right. Because they think X-Force is complicit in the assassination attempt on Professor Xavier because they think Cable did it when actually Strife did it. So it's just... The X-Men plus right. Havoc and Polaris <laughs> fighting the X-Force kids for like right. four or five issues. And that to me is tedious. Yeah, I mean, but the seed at the heart, I completely agree. Like I've never, although the pleasure to me as a kid was that, as I said in the Iceman episode, like I had just read that like novelization that was like a description of all the characters and seeing them all come to life in this way was sort of fun to me. Like I know who boom boom is. I read a paragraph about her and right. that was sort of a pleasure, but I agree. I've never cared for like, you know, good guy versus good guy. It's the most tedious thing, but the heart of the executioner's song story to me is really, I think really cool. And to me, like executioner song to me is what I think Inferno is to you at its, in its idea, the reveal, the, the, the innovation is that Strife and Cable are in some kind of cloned relationship with each other, but who they are originally is the child, the baby of Cyclops and Madeline. Right. That was sacrificed to the future by the Ascani at the end of X Factor 68, which is like really Claremont's last great stories are that and X-Men 1, 2, 3, right? Mm-hmm. Apocalypse infects the baby that is left after Madeline is gone, that Cyclops and Jean are now raising, with a techno-organic virus. And this mysterious character named Ascani says, I can save him, but only if I take him to the future. And you will never see him again, and yada, and will, yada, yeah. yada, Which is a nice solution to the fact that we don't want our We don't want a baby, a baby. right, yeah. yeah. No, they gave him the baby because Claremont was writing him out. Once he's <laughs> right. back, the baby's a problem. It's the same thing. Listen, the legacy virus kills off Ilyana because after her happy ending of sorts in Inferno where she gets her childhood back, shit, now we got a kid sitting around. Like, right. they don't want to have the kid around. <laughs> but the amazing thing about Executioner's Song is that Strife, who believes himself to be the original, and we can talk about the weirdness of ontologies here anyway, but mm -hmm. uh, Strife is resentful. Strife has like this amazing and this to me is the draw of the character where he comes back to get revenge on all these people who abandoned him strife doesn't understand what happened which is what's key it becomes clear because he's so shocked when at one point he um leaves a decoy baby nathan <laughs> to see if scott and gene will save it because he assumes that they will throw away the child to save themselves because that is what he has been told we will later learn by Apocalypse, is what happened to him. He is completely shaken when they're like, we have to save the baby. Because he's like, what? 
Only right. good parents would do that. <laughs> so he has this whole... Complete nervous breakdown in the middle of it. And before the reveal happens, I mean, the thing that is really done well in this story is... You're exactly right that the good parts of Excuse Song are very good. And it's all of the stuff with the three of them. The problem is that almost everything around it is just little fights that don't yeah. do anything. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a... it's. One of the things that's annoying about it is it keeps holding back its trump card when it should play it much earlier. It like should. It really, it really should say like, well, why is this guy so mad at Xavier? Because Xavier's dream led to him being killed. Why is he so mad at Apocalypse? Because Apocalypse is the one who fucked up his life. Why is he mad at Mr. Sinister? Because Mr. Sinister created the situation whereby Scott and Madeline had this baby in the first place, right? Like he is here to just junk all of it, right? He calls himself the chaos bringer. And he's mad at Scott and Jean because he believes that they sent him to the future to save them themselves right that's what he thinks so he keeps playing these amazing games where he's like feeding scott baby food (laughs) yeah the really disturbing one is there's a sequence where he like chains jean to a wall and has her like groped by sort of robot arms and phallic tentacles and things for like an hour while she tries to fight them off with her telekinesis and it's really because this is the sensation of his growing up right foreign hands groping him exactly but it also has a very edible like oh yeah assaulting your mom i mean quality all of it it has like (laughs) but yeah then he also shoves baby food in scott's mouth and calls him a good boy in a panel that out of context has become very famous as an insane panel it's psychosexual and disturbing and incestuous and everything that is disturbing about it is there but it's also very sad because what he says after he does it is he says Is that right? Is that how you do it? Is that how you feed a child? If I can do it, why couldn't you? Yeah. (laughs) And they don't know what the fuck he's talking about. They're confused. Scott figures it out by the end. But what's wild is it's never said. Yeah, it really is kind of a... You have to have read the earlier stories (laughs) to know what they're hinting at. Because this is before we get the Cable Solo or Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, which are the things that fill in... All of the Ascani stuff. Yeah. Cable 6, 7, and 8 are where they actually retcon it again to make Strife the clone, right? Yes. Like, because they don't want him to have been... They don't want the the real child... Real, in quotation marks. Because I will say, in Executioner's Song, the takeaway that I certainly get and that I think is the intention is that Strife is the real Nathan. Yeah. And what's cool about that is he becomes... In, like, a very real sense, the real child of Madeline, right? Like, yes. fuck you for what you did to me. Like, it really is Cyclops' sins. Like, there's a great moment. Like, I love the one you talked about. Is that how you do it? But there's another one where he says to Cyclops in this very catty way. He's like, I- I'm sure you'll do the least you can do. It's always what you do. <laughs> right. Because, <laughs> in fact, even though Strife is wrong ontologically about his identity, he is quite right that Cyclops abandoned a baby. It's not the moment he thought Cyclops abandoned a baby. It's before that. But he did abandon <laughs> yeah, the baby did before that. The baby. Yeah. yeah, and all the crimes he's accusing him of are true. Like he really has come to bring judgment to the X Men, and I really love that as a story. And there is a moment in the confrontation between Strife and Cable at the end where you see a psychic image of Madeline holding the baby yes. high as she yeah. attacks the X Men, and that is Strife projecting out. Right? Like, he remembers that. Yeah. <laughs> and he's angry. He's angry about, I think, 
to some extent, what was done to his mother. I mean, there is a... That is a missed opportunity. The fact that Strife and Madeline have never been on page together, yeah. as far as I know. There's an X-Men thing where it's the other Madeline, yeah. Well, that is our Madeline, <laughs> but it's complicated. I have an explainer. I have an explainer. It never goes there, and it really should. It's a shame. The fact that they never go there, really, because that's just him fighting with X-Man, and she like is vaguely around. Mm-hmm. It's not, let's sit down and talk to my child, particularly because... The same thing that happened to Madeline happens to Strife, which is that the second it's retconned that he's a clone, Fuck he you. no longer yeah. is given any value as a human being. Exactly. He's left to a monster. He is left to apocalypse to raise in the future. And everyone is like, well, okay, but he's just a remainder anyway. So it's fine. And right. the <laughs> other person whose guilt we haven't talked about, although you talked about it last week, is Rachel's, right? Like, Yeah, Rachel creates him in the first place. Rachel perpetuates the exact same sins. That happened to Madeline, <laughs> right. So Rachel, after, after witnessing the Inferno, which Rachel saw, Rachel, in her capacity as Mother Ascani, thousands of years in the future, it's complicated, listen to last week's episode, when she summons her brother forth through time to be the prophesied Ascani son, he's dying of the technorganic virus. Despite what Sister Ascani told Scott and Jean, it's touch and go. Here. <laughs> right. It's not like, like <laughs> the Ascani are. I love how gray they always yeah, are. Yeah, <laughs> like how completely they're just like you know what? I mean, it's very Bene Gesserit, right? Like exactly. It's very yeah, Dune. that's exactly what they're doing. Yeah, Sappho meets yeah the, the it's Sappho meets the Bene Gesserit, <laughs> the 40th century. <laughs> yeah, and Mother Ascani is very much a Lady Jessica kind of character. Like she is a good guy, but she's the Bene Gesserit, and she can't quite escape that. Yeah. She's perfectly willing to instrumentalize myth as a weapon, right? Like that. Yes, and she's willing to sacrifice her children to some extent if it will fulfill the prophecy. Right, Ascani, the sister Ascani who goes back to save them is already dead. Just by doing that, she is dead. The mere act of going back (laughs) means that she will die when she returns because the time stream (laughs) will tear her to ribbons or whatever, right? So it's very, like, morally dubious. And... It's a good beat for Rachel because Rachel is a good person, Mm -hmm. but Rachel also is someone who has done terrible things and who feels a lot of guilt about her years as a hound, about all of that stuff. So when she winds up in this terrible, terrible future that is, let's be honest, in some ways worse than the future she had initially escaped from. Yeah, yeah. Age of apocalypse times a thousand, right, yeah. It's like, oh, I got out of the days of future past and now I'm in a hell world where mutants rule, but it's a complete fucking nightmare. So great. This future also sucks. The only way that I can fix this is to bring my brother, the prophesied hero with the perfect genetic code or whatever, because he's the Gray Summers child forward in time and yada, yada, yada. Because that's the thing that can kill Apocalypse. That's the only thing that can kill Apocalypse, right? right. <laughs> and the only thing that he can live in permanently. That's the cool thing about this. That's the other beat is that Apocalypse, and this is something that's been pretty much dropped in stories after this, but in the 90s it's established that the way Apocalypse stays immortal is by, I mean, they give him a weakness like Celine. Celine has to drain other people to maintain her youth and beauty and strength. Apocalypse has to literally body hop into new right. bodies. <laughs> but they're never perfect. They're never perfect. And eventually his great power 
burns them out in a sort of Proteus-ish kind of way. But he's in them for like hundreds of years. It's not Which quite is as... the origin of Mr. Sinister too, right? Like Apocalypse is cre- Apocalypse is reborn in the Victorian age. Retroactively, this is the retcon origin of Mr. Sinister that's provided. Right, yeah. yeah. Well, he's not the little orphan anymore. <laughs> yeah. yeah, he's no longer, he's no longer like the orphan bully from the orphanage projecting right. psychic whatever. No, the retcon in further adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix, where they go to the past, is that Mr. Sinister was an experiment that Apocalypse did. Yeah, he's like, he keeps, he keeps being like, well, he has to keep regenerating, he keeps having to go to sleep. And he's like, while I'm sleeping, I'm going to hire this guy who is somehow simultaneously Charles Darwin and Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde and Dracula and the Wolfman. <laughs> he like empowers this random scientist, Nathaniel Essex, to cultivate him the perfect body genetically. Yes. And Sinister, because of the weird time flux of the, all this, decides the best way to achieve that perfect body is the bloodlines of Gene and Cyclops. Right. He tracks the Summers and Grey bloodlines. This is where Amanda Mueller, the Black Womb, gets right. involved, who is a fascinating <laughs> character that they should bring back. Because can you imagine her on Krakoa? Oh, my God. There's so many of these, like... So many, like, truly evil characters that it would be wild to bring back. Because the 90s really were... We were really, as a culture, dealing with, like, Dolly the Lamb, right? And, like... Like, yeah, eugenics were kind of a thing we had to think about all of a sudden. Right. Like, you can sort of cultivate your own perfect body. What would that well, mean? Well, it's Gattaca, right? Yeah, exactly. It's that whole thing. In the comic, Moira is mapping the mutant genome because in reality, we were mapping the right? human genome. <laughs> like this was a thing that was happening at the time. So you get Mr. Sinister at his most evil, right? Like, we're still dealing with, like, these panels of him. Well, it's before they retcon him into a Nazi, which is <laughs> right. the really, you know, which I'm glad we're the smartest little thing they did in house of x powers of 10 was to just have clone sinister kill nazi (laughs) sinisters so that we just can pretend that it's like well this sinister didn't do that right which is just the only way to deal with that but yeah no well victorian sinister is actually kind of sympathetic his child dies because of a mutation that is a birth defect and he's like this genetic scientist so he begins studying mutation and then apocalypse is like And evolves him, much as he does to Warren, Mm -hmm. with celestial technology. Mr. Mm -hmm. Sinister actually isn't a mutant, which is why in the more recent stuff, the new clone Sinister that kills the old Sinister and replaces him stresses that he stole Thunderbird's X-Gene. Right, yeah. Yeah, he's a chimera now, yeah. He's (laughs) He's a chimera now, which pisses Moira off because there weren't (laughs) supposed to be chimeras yet. But his job is to sort of grow this perfect gene baby... Yeah, he spends a century tracing those two bloodlines through Amanda Mueller, who is the progenitrix of the Summers line, and then wherever he starts with the Greys. And by the time he's around in the 70s, he's like, all right, I think it's once Gene is Phoenix, he's like, time to do this, right? Yeah, it's right? time. So, yeah, it's, the, the egg is done baking. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, so he gets somehow, I don't think we've ever found out how, a cell sample from Gene because he's worried that he might not be able to control her. So just in case he wants the genome and then she dies on the moon. And just as this failsafe he has created, this is all retcon, obviously, that's established in Inferno six years after Madeline was introduced. But it turns out that he had cloned Gene just in case. (laughs) But the clone wouldn't wake up. And then when Gene died on the moon, the phoenix shocked Madeline awake because it was looking for anything it could attach to. Right. And the child that that produces is the promised end of Apocalypse, right? Exactly. 
which is why he infects and this is also a retcon which is why he infects him with the virus is like he has to destroy this threat to himself but it's also <laughs> it's also the perfect his motivations are him. confusing <laughs> though because it's also the body he longs to inhabit so yeah. it doesn't make a ton so of it sense. gets retcon both ways where it's like he was testing him and like <laughs> well we have to assume he gave him the virus to force scott and gene to give the baby to ascani Right, so I he's, guess you think he's yeah. It's it literally I literally read every strife appearance for this, and it literally gets written absolutely both ways. <laughs> yeah, it doesn't make any sense particularly. So the point is, then little baby Nathan arrives at Mother Iscani's lesbian commune, and she looks at him, and he's like half robot at this point, right. and she's just like, "Well, this isn't going so well." And going back to the promise that she made to Nathan when he was born, no matter what happens, I will always save you. Rachel clones him. And this was interesting to me because, well, just as a Madeline person, I'm like, oh, so if the clone of Nathan would really be Nathan, then Madeline was a real person, I guess. Wasn't she? Right. I don't know. It doesn't yeah. matter. I mean, this is the heart of Strife's insanity, right? Yes. Is like, am I a legitimate person or aren't I? If I am, you owed me an ethic of care, which was never given. Right. And if I'm not, then I don't owe you anything. I can just destroy. Like, right. So both ways, he's right. <laughs> <laughs> and to be fair to Rachel, right after they successfully clone the baby and managed to successfully halt the progression of the techno-organic virus right. in the original baby, <laughs> right after that happens... Apocalypse's forces storm the Ascani stronghold and kill, like, everyone right. and mortally wound Rachel, who then spends the following decade, essentially, in trying coma. not to yeah. die. Like, right. in a yeah. coma, holding herself together <laughs> purely with the sheer power of her psychic abilities because right. she doesn't have the phoenix anymore. And she also does one other amazing thing, which is she pulls Cyclops well, first, and Jean. first. <laughs> First, first, she clones Cyclops. This is why it's Dune, right? Because she makes right. Golas. She literally right. makes Golas. She clones Scott and Jean somehow in the future, right. makes bodies for them that are just their bodies, and then uses her chronoscoping power, which you forgot she had, didn't you? Because she hasn't used it since Days of Future Past. And she pulls Scott and Jean's consciousnesses forward in time, 2,000 years, and puts them in those genetically compatible bodies, tells them not to say who they are because Scott and Jean are messianic Part of her crazy religion, this point. yeah, exactly. Yeah, at this point in the crazy religion, <laughs> Scott and Jean are like the patriarchs and matriarchs of the Torah. Right. There's a lot of, this is all the, the adventures of Cyclops and Jean, by the way. This is the adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix and Ascani's son, which is the sequel. Right. And it's quite explicit in its religious references, right? Like there's images of the two of them with the baby on a donkey, going to make the pilgrimage for the well, census. Well, and they're fighting the new Canaanites. Yes. I mean, it's new Canaan. <laughs> um, the art is crazy beautiful. It's like so weird for a comic. Gene Ha, it really looks gorgeous. I really recommend checking and this Ascani out. And Ascani is not a real word, but it sounds like Hebrew for a reason, right? right like it's all right, very, yeah. <laughs> you know. So they take on the aliases of Red and Slim with a Y, Dayspring. <laughs> And become Cable's adoptive They raise the Messiah until he's ready to do the thing he has to do. Until he's 12 years old and then Rachel dies. Finally, as she just can't hold it together anymore. And unfortunately, her death sends Scott and Jean back. She does get an opportunity to talk to them briefly and is like, 
mom, I would really appreciate it if you took on the code name Phoenix and tried to redeem it because I tried and I won't get a chance to actually do it and oh, I might it would matter to me this, yeah. and yeah it's a good scene <laughs> the cyclops scene is really beautiful too it's honestly kind of a crime that they ever brought rachel back after this i'm glad in the long run that they did because i like where rachel is now but it was not worth bringing her back for 30 years of <laughs> any of those rachel gray stories when the mother Ascani story is one of the best deaths for a character yeah. in any of the x-men lore yeah and it is the end of her Excalibur thing where she gets lost in the time stream. Too, yeah, right? like it's the fault. I mean, it's, and it's the same writer. I mean, it's Lobdell right. who sends her into the time stream and then he does the whole Mother Iscani thing. And that stuff I do think is good. Fabian uh, hates it, as he made clear in his <laughs> interview. He seemed irked by it because he felt like it was them butzing with Liefeld's character in a way that wasn't, yeah it does feel like it you know I mean it's definitely not there at first right like it is but there is a real sense of it's like, absolutely not there when the character's introduced but there is a real sense in those 90s issues where it's like Liefeld got rid of everyone we love so we don't owe him anything is kind no, of No, that's my feeling. My feeling is I don't give a shit if it fucked up Liefeld's plan. I simply don't. Because here's the thing. It's a better story this way. Yeah. Well, the the flip side of the thing you just described is the what happens to the clone, right? Is that right. this baby, this quote unquote, like, baby who's not infected... Well, is lightly infected. It's just like just a dusting of technology. Right. He has the scars, which is why they both have the star on their eye. They both yeah. have the sexy eye star. <laughs> We're also going to talk on this episode a lot, I imagine, by the way, about how horny I am for cable. Because yeah, I mean, it's I'm very horny for cable. <laughs> and the guest I have scheduled in August for a cable episode, I don't think is gay. So I need to get my cable yayas out oh, in this episode. He's so hot. He really cable is. is daddy. Yeah. And what's cool about it is that. Even though they're clones, their energy, their sexual energy is so, so different. different. It's really And bad. so compatible, which and we'll get so, to. Yeah, I saw the question <laughs> about that. Um, but they really do read as like completely different. It's really amazing to me, no matter which the artist is, that they feel different as characters. They're different characters and they, they walk differently. They talk differently. Yeah. The carriage of their face is different. Andy Kubert does a lot of really impressive work in Executioner's Song, particularly with their faces and the way that they look like yeah, different people, yeah. but they still have the same face. So when Mother Iscani's compound is destroyed, Apocalypse doesn't know that there's a clone. So his people see the baby and are like, great. That's, <laughs> that's what we came to get. That's the we've been waiting for. Yeah. <laughs> and so they grab the clone baby, Strife, and they take him to Apocalypse. And Apocalypse is like, wow, they really did beat back that techno-organic virus, huh? Like, good work those <laughs> witches did or whatever. I don't even remember what he says. But he takes the child for his own and names him Strife. Right. Which is why this episode is called Strife, because the baby doesn't have a name. As much as he might insist that he's Nathan Christopher Summers. He's Strife with as a As it y. stands, yeah. Because <laughs> it's the future. And actually, he's named after himself. Because the weird, horrible yes, thing here is... That's the, there's the time paradox. <laughs> because then, when Strife comes back in Executioner's Song and fights Apocalypse, he calls himself Strife. And so Apocalypse thinks, ah, Nathan... <laughs> will be named Strife in the future, so he names him Strife. Right. Yeah, he, he names himself. It's a, yeah. That's very Terminator also, right? Yeah, I'm a little annoyed because I was looking at some wikis before this, and there's a lot of errors in a lot of them. But one of the things that kind of bothers me is that Strife gets called that he's from the reality 4855 or something, which is... The whole point of Cable is, yeah, it's 616, right? Like, it is a terminal Terminator plot where it's like... 
unlike Days of Future Shit Past, it has to be the same reality. But because Strife is cloned from... He's cloned in the future, so they count him yeah, as being... Yeah, like they should count be him as being... It should be, for the sake of the story... <laughs> it should be, but the Ascani timeline is given a different designation now because it has been averted. Right. I guess that's true. It's it's branched since. That makes right. sense. Right, and so okay. it's it has to be assigned a different right. <laughs> timeline because it's no longer a viable future right. for Earth 616. Right. Anyway, so while the real... I'm always using quotes because I have a lot of issues with designated. We can just say while cable, while cable is being, while Nathan Dayspring is not yet named cable, but while he's being raised as like this messianic figure, Strife is being raised as like a Nero Caligula, right? As he's like this apocalypse throne. He's murdering all his tutors with his psionic powers, (laughs) (laughs) reducing them to rubble. (laughs) There's this um, Duncan Idaho kind of character called Chaver. Right. Who is the, he's the one who kidnaps him for Apocalypse, right? I, as I recall. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then raises him essentially because Apocalypse has no interest in like actually raising a child. Right, for some reason. Chaver's like too nice. So Apocalypse makes sure that Strife also gets like the shit kicked out of him a lot and, you know, is right. hardened and all of that. Apocalypse's only concern is to amplify his power. Because the plan, once he's like 13 or whatever, is for Apocalypse to take over his body. Right. <laughs> Which he hasn't told Strife. I mean, right. He's like, you are the heir to my throne. You will rule after me. And that's what he's saying to everybody around him because they don't know how Apocalypse works. So, you know, right. he is planning to rule through his son, but he's just going to take the identity and become the new Apocalypse, right? Right. The final Apocalypse, right? Then... The best laid plans of ancient external mutants gang after Glay because <laughs> he tries to do it and realizes immediately that Strife is a clone. And this is where it's established <laughs> in this retcon series that Strife is not the real Nathan because Apocalypse tries to enter him and is like, this is not the right body at all. This is a <laughs> <Right>. copy. <laughs> Which makes sense, because if you look at Jean and Madeline, for instance, Madeline is not as powerful as Jean without the power boost from the demons. So the implication is that when you clone a mutant who's that powerful, the clone you get is not as powerful as the original, because otherwise you could just clone Jean 500 times and get... 500 omega level mutants right right? like that would be problematic if sinister yeah i mean this is the whole problem of krakoa now it's like like the the whole thing we saw in hellions where it's like well madeline's not a real person because uh she's a clone yeah which is sick obviously and and we're not supposed to think that they're right (laughs) but to me like this this i mean the this kid has the worst day of his life right not only does he find out that his ostensible father has been raising him to steal his just body. to kill but him right yeah he's also not even worthy of but that. also you're not even worthy of that because you're not and apocalypse the worst part is but i was like well i'll take it anyway right. until i find the real one <laughs> so good how could you not love this character like that's amazing <laughs> but strife is powerful enough to push apocalypse out right and this is the final death of Apocalypse. Like, he may be the clone of the Kwisatz Haderach, but he's got enough going on that he can force Apocalypse out. Right. And this is the end of Apocalypse. Cyclops and Jean are there. They go back to their present day. The virus that Apocalypse has been engineering to finally bring an end to humans, which is what Strife will eventually turn into the legacy virus, is yes. averted. 
And that's the end of this story. And then we get the Ascani Sun story, which is itself its own bit of fun, where Strife teams up with Madam Sanctity, a.k.a. Tanya Trask. Tanya Trask. <laughs> so here, so I'm just going to say, point blank, do not worry about Tanya Trask. Tanya <laughs> I love her. <laughs> don't worry about it. I also love her, but Tanya Trask is the ultimate, like, aborted character. Yes, arc. it's like, It's true. a character that has completely... She just gets sandbagged utterly. So yeah. just to explain for people who may be listening, <laughs> Tanya Trask is the daughter of Bolivar Trask, the creator of the Sentinel. She's the Trask. Yeah. <laughs> but she's a mutant, much like her brother was in the original Larry, Trask yeah. story, which is the whole, uh-oh, like, right. you know, twist of the Sentinel story <laughs> with the Trasks. But her power is a lot like Ilyana's, where Ilyana's power was to open dimensional portals and that led to her falling right into limbo or other place. The power that Tanya has is to travel through time. And so as a child, she just accidentally starts traveling through time and disappears. And that's why she's not in the original story. As retcons go, it's not bad. It's a pretty good one. It's so great. And she goes insane. Yeah. <laughs> Tanya Trask as Madame Sanctity, who is one of the Ascani in the future... She's taken in by Rachel and becomes one of Rachel's priestesses. The problem is that she's part of the 12 storyline as right. it was initially meant to play out. In her travels through time, she implants the knowledge of who the 12 are. And the 12 are the people who are prophesied to be able to kill Apocalypse in association with the Ascani Sun. That's like the whole <laughs> thing. She gives their identities to Cable, like, deep in his mind or whatever. Like, there's all kinds of stuff here. The problem is that the 12, when it actually finally happens in 2000, turns out to be, first of all, it's <laughs> awful. And I say this as, like, you know I'm an Alan Davis head, but Alan Davis will tell you, he's like, I just scripted the plots they sent me and the whole thing's crap. Right. And uh, the twist on it, which is kind of funny, is that it turns out Apocalypse created the prophecy of the 12 <laughs> right. thousands of years ago in order to get all of the powerful mutants he needed together in order to become omnipotent. Yeah. That's really funny, but it means that all of the stuff Tanya Trask did doesn't really make any sense, which is why I imagine that in Ascani Sun, by the end of it, Strife tracks down Tanya, who is the only Ascani that has survived the slaughter of the Ascani, and convinces her essentially we can do this together. Like right. I can help you fulfill your mission. <laughs> and she's wacky enough at that point that she's like, all right, child, like, let's do it. And then she literally never appears again in a right. single comic book. Yeah. I love her. I'd love to write her again. Yeah. Well, let's, let's do it. Right. Let's get, <laughs> let's get Tanya up in here. Cause Tanya is the one that trains him in his psionic powers. She's clearly, we can, I think there's a question about Strife's costume, but like, his costume is great because it has so many references. Like, those spikes are clearly the Ascani spikes. That are based on Rachel's hound outfit. On based on her hound outfit, yeah. So it's like, his spikes are Rachel's spikes by four degrees of separation. Mm -hmm. Yeah, because that's the other thing. To add to, like, the hound outfit discourse from last episode, all of the Ascani 
priestesses start wearing those. So Rachel yeah. has fully reclaimed that <laughs> right, shit. Yeah. She's built a religion. Like that's Yeah, that's she built a religion around it. Religion. Yeah. <laughs> Mother Ascani came out of being a hound. Like that's part of the religion, right? So Madame Sanctity wears that hound costume with like a billowing blue cloak over it. Like exactly. that like a, a mantle, I should say, cuz it's very like virgin Mary yeah. blue mantle. I mean the whole thing is like I mean that's very Christian, right? Like it's like, "Oh, we all like the crown of thorns." And right, like, exactly. The thing you, you wear used your to kill suffering. Us is, exactly. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so that's the last of her, and the that's really the last of her, and really all you get out of it. The other, the other thing in Ascani's son is like um, Cable and Jen Scott. Cable and Jen Scott, his wife Alia. Speaking right. of. <laughs> Speaking of Oedipal issues. <laughs> well, no, also speaking of like the Jewish shit that's in it. Like, so like Alia as a word means like right. rising, right? And it is used in the modern context. It means it's when a Jew emigrates to Israel is making Alia. That's his wife. She takes the name Jen Scott, which is J E N S K O T, <laughs> after Jen and Scott, which are Jean and Scott, who right. are, it's like how their names have been passed through history. And she doesn't know that they're Nathan's parents. Right, right. She just takes the name. So he's fucking Jen Scott. They're married. <laughs> right. The thing that's really interesting is their son, Tyler. Right. Because yeah. Tyler... There's a weird thing I saw in the wikis about this. So people have clearly not understood. Tyler is not Cable's son. Like, he is... An, right. He's blonde. Like, he is not in any way... Well... Do you read this differently? Because I looked through and I was like, there's nothing here... Here's the thing. And then we probably should jump to the character file because so many people are probably like, what the fuck are they talking about? And then we'll pick up this conversation right where we left it. But Cable consistently refers to Tyler as Jen Scott's son. Right. Jen Scott's child. And he's raising Tyler, but he refers explicitly to the boy as Jen Scott's child. Jen Scott's son, always. The implication I take away is that it's sort of a reverse Madeline situation in that there is a heavy implication that when Jen Scott was Strife's prisoner. Really? You, I, I, oh. It's never picked up again. I just. I mean, it's the ultimate kind of friggy kind of thing, right? Like she becomes Yeah, the well, because then she dies for, immediately, yeah, exactly. right? So. <laughs> but that goes back all the way to the New Mutants issues where he talks about how, like, he's mad about Tyler's death but he says right. specifically to the New Mutants that Tyler was not his son. No, right? that Tyler was my wife, Jen Scott's son. Yeah, and that's a fucked up way to talk about him if that's... That's why I say it's Madeline-esque because if Strife is Tyler's biological father, then Tyler was biologically Cable's. Yeah. But Cable rejects the Gene framework where Gene said, well, therefore you're mine. Right, right. Whereas Cable's saying, no, Strife... Well, also, no, actually, now I'm thinking about it. Cable doesn't know Strife is his clone. That's true. Although he sees him in, um, this is also another weird thing where it's like, there's like 12 times he discovers Strife looks like him because he sees him in Cyclops and Gene. He's like, you look just like me. Right? <laughs> <laughs> but it's the Cable Blood and Metal story where he really. Yeah, that's the first later time. But he sees him, he sees him as children for sure. But that's yeah. long after he's talked to the New Mutants and after we've gotten all of the Jen Scott son stuff. So in that case, he didn't know. Right. So if it is stress, but the point right. is, we never find out. I like to just toss that out because a, I, I just don't, I don't think we need to do that to Jen Scott, who's already like I murdered for Cable's plot. It's a lot like what Fabian said about Catherine Ann Summers, actually, in yeah. his episode. Like, 
okay, if she had a biological son with Ken, like, please, and this is my assumption, let's have it be, like, genetically engineered. Yeah, yeah. Let's not force her to bring a pregnancy by rape to term for plot drama. Right. Yeah, it's a very 90s thing to do. And it's already a character that has been, as you said, like, sort of ultimate fridged, right? Like, Jen Scott is a character who exists purely to die and motivate Cable. And I mean, now it's very clear, like, in the current timeline... Kid Cable is here, and Jen Scott is still in the future, yeah. living her life. Like, it's very easy for her to be going, in the same way he's dating now, she could hook up with Tether Blood in the future, right? <laughs> well, and there's another thing, too, which is that Jen Scott has a sister, Hope, right, who's black, but they right. always refer to each other as sisters. Yep. And they were both Ascani right. trainees. They were like Ascani novitiates or whatever. <laughs> so it's possible that they're using sister in that sense. But it's also possible that they're just adoptive siblings or that Hope is her half-sister. I think that the intention was to show that family is complicated in the future in ways that aren't the nuclear family because it is never explained why Alia and Hope call each other sisters. Yeah, yeah. It's left to us to infer. That whole that whole future frame is so fascinating because like sometimes it looks like Dune. And sometimes it looks like Blade Runner. Yeah. So, like, like the city of New York is called Apple Crust. It looks like it's 30 years from now, but it's the 40th century. Right. Like, like yeah. The world building is so needlessly over the top. Like the characters are like both well, and, and listen, like this person suffered. There's a reason they deleted this entire timeline in 2000. Right. Like it no longer exists. It right. has ceased to be. Right. Although it seems like, well, I mean, Strife is popping, this is all the way at the end, but Strife is popping backwards and forwards to it in the Ed Brisson thing. Like Kid Cable is frequently, yeah. Mother Iscani's in that, and you yeah. would think that and she so couldn't Boke, be. And so is and so is Tetherblood, and so right. is Aaliyah. But it is emphatically erased in the 12. When Cable kills Apocalypse in Scott's body, which... Don't worry about right. it. Which is the trauma that Grant Morrison keeps alluding to. Yeah, yeah that's what. That's why Cyclops is all fucked up at the beginning of New X-Men. Right. <laughs> that act makes it so that Apocalypse, although he eventually gets better because he's Apocalypse and he can't really yeah, die. He's, he's cool. You don't want to not do it. Right, yeah. <laughs> For whatever reason, the satisfaction of the prophecy of the Twelve means that the Ascani timeline as it was cannot come to pass and is just simply erased. Which doesn't super make a ton of sense, but it's fine. Like, we just yeah, it. Yeah, it's, it's around if we need it. It's like Days of Future Past. It's like, it matters exactly yeah. as much as any writer. I mean, Days of Future matter. Past, at least Claremont is like, turns out that wasn't your past, so you didn't accomplish anything, <laughs> right? Whereas, like... Right. Yeah. But I mean, the new, the new status quo is like, some things just always happen, right? And like, right. Nimrods will always happen. Perhaps an Age of Apocalypse will always happen. Except I think that we are meant to perhaps infer that based on what has happened with Apocalypse and Ten of Swords, that he no longer has a need to be to conquer Earth. The dominant. Yeah. I mean, a lot. It's amazing the things. It is kind of fascinating the way new fans will forget. They, they just don't know how monstrous Apocalypse has been written in the past. <laughs> if you look at Executioner's song, though, what's interesting is that a lot of the seeds for what Hickman and Teeny Howard did with that character are right there. Like there's the whole sequence where he cures Xavier. Yep. There's a nobility. There's a nobility to him. And during it, 
Aurora says at one point, like, this is a man who's suffered greatly. You know, yeah. like, this is someone who has been through hell. And as usual, she's the vector by which we learn to forgive characters, right? Like, it's her eyes through which we forgave Magneto in 150, Correct. right? Like, she sees yeah. him sleeping and she's like, this is... This is a man who we have misunderstood. And similarly, she looks at Apocalypse. And Callisto is the first one, right? Right. Like she's very much about seeing the capacity for, for something else in Right. People. The X-Men are perpetually doing this, right? They're perpetually yeah. like folding in. I mean, it is the capaciousness of neoliberalism, right? Like you fold in the adversary. <laughs> the adversary becomes your ally. That's the way to defang them. And that's what they call that. Krakoa is the ultimate example of that right like but i find krakoa <laughs> to be more radical oh absolutely yeah like i don't think krakoa outside of what charles is doing with x-force because charles cannot help himself <laughs> is a neoliberal project no absolutely i just mean like that's i mean this is also it is just generally the strategy x-men can do yeah no they, absolutely the cops in the avengers it's what they do with emma is right, like, all right, exactly. if we bring this radical element into our fold and encourage her to teach what can in she our teach way, us? Yeah. It, right. Like exchange, that's yeah. I mean, that's what they do. And that's what she calls out in the very beginning of Morrison's run when she says to Jean, like, Jean, I really don't think I've been turned into a Fabergé killing machine so that I can wave the flag for ex liberalism. <laughs> and come to think of it, that is literally the opening speech of Executioner's Song, Charles Xavier on the stage yeah. at the Lila Cheney concert. At the Lila Cheney concert. Gives like the ultimate version of this for better and ill. Like if that was the last speech Charles Xavier gave, if he had died in that comic, his his character, as, as, as Strife says, like it's rare a man gets to deliver his own eulogy. And that's... <laughs> I mean, I... I think they should have just killed him here. It's not a bad place for him to go. Absolutely. I think that if you assassinate Xavier for real, this story is a lot better. Yeah. yeah. If this had been about, I mean, there's a lot of moments in Executioner's Song where it's like, it would have been cool if you had stuck the landing on this. And there's a way that it could have propelled a new direction for a lot of this book, including like, because that's what I, I really, I really, I mean, obviously... As you are probably intimating, the problem with Strife as a character is he's very complicated. But at its core, as a critique of the way the X-Men's politic has been damaging to the personal, he has a lot of interesting things to say. And his critique of Xavier is not really wrong, right? Like, you have created a worldview that has led to the personal suffering and the militarization of a lot of people who otherwise might have had happy family lives. And I think that's a really cool thing to say. I mean, if you think about it, Claremont, before he quit, his intention was to kill Xavier in Uncanny X-Men 300, which is right around Executioner's right. song. Yeah. You know, and it is kind of the time to yeah, do it. Yeah. Now, Claremont wanted to do it with the Shadow King, unfortunately, which is a character that's just never really worked outside of <laughs> maybe two stories ever. But either way, the point was Xavier was supposed to die. And instead we get evil Xavier, right? Instead we get Onslaught and that's where the whole fucking book <laughs> collapses. Yeah, I mean, you may be getting the sense that I love ideas more than execution. Like Onslaught as a concept is really cool to me. Yeah, I think Onslaught as a concept is incredibly fucking stupid. <laughs> so that's where you and I diverge. I did like the audacity of Hickman blaming it on moira like having her go oops i let him read my mind too many times and now he's gone crazy he yeah 
And now we've got this whole onslaught thing going. Like, that's funny because it really is just such an incoherent, bad story. It has a lot of the problems Executioner's song has where it's steered from the back. Like, it only you only know what it was supposed to be about when it's over. Like, Onslaught famously as a book, there was like an explanation issue that came out when it was all done. It was like, Mm -hmm. this is what it was supposed to be about. Oh, we didn't even talk. I mean, one of the reasons I love Strife is he keeps the strike files, which were the cards. Yeah, we'll get to those. I think we should read some. <laughs> oh my god, later. I love them! I love them. So yeah, because after Executioner's song, there's an, a special issue that's just Strife's strike with a K strife, with the y. strike files with a Y <laughs> on all of the X Men and their foes, and they're all written like in blank yeah, verse. Yeah, they're Fabian Nicieza. As I said, he loves to be like a prose stylist. And he just writes these absurdly radioactive purple prose. They were on trading cards that were collected into the the comic book where he just like it's strife like brooding on all of the major figures of the event. Yeah, and he just like <laughs> he just sort of pontificates about each one in turn. And I think we should read them oh, later because so I think we would do a good job. I love it. But Right now, I think we should pause for the Cerebro character file on Strife. This isn't going to be very long because Strife has only appeared seven Zaladanes. Well, unless it turns out that that he's appeared a lot more than we thought he has. But we'll get to that after the break. So kick back and try, try to follow any of the storylines I am about to attempt to explain to you. And then we will come back here for more on Strife with Anthony Oliveira. We'll be right back. X-Men, X-Men. All right, here we fucking go. Strife, the Chaos Bringer, Crown Prince of Mutant Kind, is an iconic villain of the 90s whose publication history is mostly retcon after retcon after retcon. Bear with me. Created by Rob Liefeld and Louise Simonson, he is the leader of the Mutant Liberation Front, a terrorist organization pursuing freedom for mutant kind through violent means. He's the archenemy of Cable, a time traveler from the future who becomes a mentor to the New Mutants, and rebrands that team as X-Force. Later revelations would tie Strife and Cable closer together than just about any other nemeses in comics. Strife first appears in 1990's New Mutants 86, where he's already the charismatic and mysterious leader of the New Mutant Liberation Front. The MLF attacks a research facility and promises more violence unless the United States government releases two young mutant prisoners, Rusty Collins and Sally Blevins, a.k.a. Skids, members of the New Mutants who were recently captured by Mystique's Freedom Force. When the authorities refuse to cooperate, the MLF stage a rescue themselves and succeed in taking Rusty and Skids into custody despite the attempted intervention of Cable. Rusty and Skids would be brainwashed into joining the MLF as loyal soldiers, But in the meanwhile, Cable, who crossed paths with the New Mutants in this conflict, begins reshaping the former Xavier School students into a paramilitary group. Later that year, in New Mutants 93, Cable and his team track Strife down on the island nation of Madripoor, where they shut down his narcotics operation. They later destroy a secret MLF facility in Antarctica, because I guess Strife appreciates the classic Magneto stories as much as anyone else. At the end of New Mutants 100, the final issue of the title before it's relaunched as X-Force, the reader discovers that beneath his big pointy helmet, Strife is apparently Cable himself. Rob Liefeld's concept was that Strife was Cable, who as a time traveler exists in multiple places and times at once. Strife was supposed to be Cable's unavoidable future, and the story would show the heroic Cable descending into madness and becoming his own archenemy. Credit where it's due, that is a cool idea. It's not dissimilar to what would become the origin story of the character Spiral, which we'll get into in a Spiral episode at some point. 
Cable was not supposed to be anyone in particular besides a time-traveling hero. But without consulting Liefeld, editor Bob Harris and franchise architects Jim Lee and Will Sportasio decided to tie Cable more intimately to existing X-Men lore. He was to be Nathan Christopher Charles Summers, the infant son of Scott Summers, a.k.a. Cyclops, and the late Madeline Pryor, who had been revealed as a clone of Jean Grey. Scott and Jean were raising Nathan in the pages of X-Factor, but once this new plan was in place, the baby becomes infected with a techno-organic virus by the immortal villain Apocalypse, and is sent off to an uncertain future with a time-traveling heroine called Ascani. Liefeld, in collaboration with Fabian Niciesa, came up with a compromise for Harris. Strife was to be Nathan Christopher Summers, and Cable was to be an imperfect clone of him created in the far future by the Ascani Order. Strife lurks about in the early issues of X-Force written by Liefeld, with the most significant plot beat happening in issue 10, where he reveals his true face to Cable's old ally and now enemy Garrison Kane. Rob Liefeld then left Marvel as part of the defection by several major Marvel artists to their own newly formed project, Image Comics. Now written by Fabian Niciesa, Cable convinces Kane that he's innocent, and when the two come face-to-face -face with Strife in the two-part miniseries Cable, Blood, and Metal, he's shocked to discover Kane is right. Strife and Cable are the same person when the helmet is removed, right down to their glowing eye. Strife explains that he and Cable share a common enemy, Apocalypse. He tries to kill Cable, but Cable manages to teleport away. Then comes Executioner's Song, Strife's biggest storyline. Posing as Cable, who's lost contact with X-Force, Strife publicly attempts to assassinate Charles Xavier with a highly contagious techno-organic virus. This leads to an all-out war between X-Force and the rest of the mutant heroes. The villain Mr. Sinister tricks the Horsemen of Apocalypse to kidnapping Jean Grey and Cyclops. He trades them to Strife in exchange for a sealed canister, which Strife claims contains comprehensive genetic research on the Summer's bloodline for the next 2,000 years. The Dark Riders, followers of Apocalypse, realize that their master, who is in a healing sleep, could not have ordered the Horsemen to attack. They wake him from his slumber early, leaving him weak, and Strife takes that opportunity to attack. After defeating Apocalypse, he claims leadership of the Dark Riders by dint of Apocalypse's own core teaching, survival of the fittest. He then absconds with his new followers to the blue area of the moon, where he has taken over Apocalypse's old base, the very base where Apocalypse infected baby Nathan with the T.O. virus. There, Strife tortures Scott and Jean, addressing them as father and mother, and excoriating them as unfit parents. When the X-Men and X-Factor attack his stronghold, Strife battles Cable and reveals to all assembled, without stating it explicitly, that he is Baby Nathan, returned from the future for revenge on the family he believes abandoned him to save themselves. Cable, he declares, is his flawed and broken clone. After Havoc manages to wound Strife, Cable uses a self-destruct mechanism in his bionic arm to create an unstable time travel portal. With Cyclops' help, he activates the portal and sends both himself and Strife hurtling into the time stream. The X-Men assume both men have died in the explosion, and Scott is left to grieve his son again. Mr. Sinister then opens the canister Strife gave him, and is furious to discover it apparently empty. It actually contains the Legacy Virus, a highly contagious and invariably fatal autoimmune disease affecting only mutants, which immediately begins spreading throughout the world. A Cable solo series by Fabian Niciesa, set 2,000 years in the future, but before Cable's earlier appearances, you following me, fills in some of Cable and Strife's backstory. We learn that as Nathan Dayspring, Cable was the leader of the Clan Chosen, a group rebelling against the new Canaanite dictatorship in the dystopian future. His wife Aliyah, called Jen Scott, was killed in a bombing ordered by Strife, and Strife kidnapped their son Tyler. We then jump past Executioner's Song, discovering that while Strife was indeed killed physically at the end of that storyline, his mind has persisted as a psychic entity, and he's possessed Cable's body. Strife is collaborating with Tyler, who he long ago brainwashed and turned against his father. 
They discover that, in fact, Cable is the real Nathan, and Strife is the clone created by the Ascani as a failsafe, which makes Strife go crazy and eventually abandon Cable's body. In X-Force 34, in a flashback, a long-running subplot about X-Force member Richter's distrust of Cable is explained. It was Strife who killed Richter's father, not Cable. Strife and Cable's backstory is further explored in two miniseries by Scott Lobdell, 1994's The Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix and 1996's Ascani Son. The first series explains that Baby Strife was captured by Apocalypse, who was dictator of this future, soon after the cloning was performed. Not realizing the boy was a clone, Apocalypse named Strife his heir, secretly planning to eventually steal Strife's body after he reached adolescence. When the time came, Apocalypse was horrified to discover Strife's nature as a clone, which made him an unacceptable host. Weakened, Apocalypse was unable to defend himself when he was attacked by a time-traveling Cyclops in Jean Grey, a young Cable, and his former servant, Chevere, who raised Strife from infancy and then decided to betray his master. Apocalypse died an apparently final death, and Chevere rescued Strife, who had been unconscious during Apocalypse's discovery of his nature as a clone. In the power vacuum left behind by the death of Apocalypse and disappearance of his heir, the new Canaanites take over the world. In Ascani's son, we learn that Chevere attempted to deprogram Strife of Apocalypse's teachings and raise him into a good man. Obviously, it did not work. Strife eventually murdered Chevere when he sensed his foster father thinking about betraying him. He then tracked down Madame Sanctity, the last remaining sister of the slaughtered Ascani order. Sanctity had gone crazy by this point, and after she was rescued from an attack by the apparent twin of the Ascani son, the Chosen One, she agreed to become his teacher. What happened after that is unclear, but eventually Strife, now in full command of his psychic powers, traveled back in time as Cable had, seeking to destabilize the past to secure his own grip on the future. After these flashback stories in Ascani's Son, Strife pops up pretty sparingly. He appears in a 1998 arc of X-Force as a soul tortured by the demon Blackheart in Hell, don't worry about it, and then, without any explanation, he comes back to life in X-Man, where he battles protagonist Nate Gray, an alternate version of Cable and Strife from the reality called the Age of Apocalypse, don't worry about it. In this story, it's implied that Strife may have raped Cable's wife Alia before he killed her, but honestly, I just choose to ignore that. It's not necessary. At the end of the arc, he's apparently killed again, but he pops up alive and well two years later under writer Chris Claremont as part of the ill-fated Revolution relaunch in 2000. He battles the X-Men and gets his shit rocked. When he shows up next in Scott Lobdell's Gambit and Bishop miniseries in 2001, he... Honestly, actually, don't worry about it. This is the Bette Noir storyline, and you literally will never need to know a single thing about it ever. By the end of the miniseries, Strife apologizes to Cable for all the evil things he did and then dies. Again. But not really. He returns in 2009 for the franchise-wide event Messiah War, where he teams up with Bishop to try to kill Cable and Cable's adopted daughter Hope Summers, the mutant messiah, allegedly. Don't worry about it. In the climax of the event, Strife is dragged off by a revived apocalypse who plans to finally take Strife's body for his own. If you're really confused about all the time paradoxes we must have created by now, you are not alone. Strife eventually kills Apocalypse and travels into the past again in 2014 across the two X-Force titles at that time, by Sam Humphreys and Dennis Hopeless. Strife kidnaps Bishop and Hope and tries to goad Hope into killing Bishop, but his plans end up foiled. He then turns up in Rick Remender's Uncanny Avengers working for Kang the Conqueror, and I simply refuse to reread that storyline. Magneto kills him this time. He next appears in Jerry Duggan's Deadpool, possibly through time travel shenanigans, and tries to force Deadpool to kill Cable by threatening Deadpool's young daughter. A teenage version of Strife from earlier in his own subjective timeline appears in Ed Brisson's 2019 run on X-Force, where he does battle with a teenage version of Cable. 
After raising an army in the Eastern European nation of Transia, he's defeated by Teen Cable and Rachel Summers, who wipes his memory of these events to preserve the pre-existing timeline. And that's the last we've seen of Strife. Or is it? In Jerry Duggan's new Cable solo series following the adventures of Teen Cable, Strife is an ever-looming threat, but maybe closer than anyone realizes. X-Men, X-Men. Welcome back, Clan Chosen. <laughs> I love that I've made you do this. <laughs> I cannot tell you of all the character files I have had to write, <laughs> that was the most intolerable one. Yeah. Because yeah, I... <laughs> I, I had to go through every issue I believe it. That this character has appeared in all seven Saladanes, all seven Saladanes, just so that I could get because I made this stupid idea when I started the podcast <laughs> that every character file is going to give you the retcons as they happen rather oh, than no. just doing what all the wikis do <laughs> and all the whatever what? or the Marvel official handbooks and all that shit where they just compile it all chronologically. But no, I want to explain to people how the story evolves over time. The problem with doing that with Strife and Cable is going to be an abject nightmare right. is that I couldn't remember when certain revelations happened. Right. Yeah. Because at a certain point. <laughs> Neither could the writers. Right. Well, it's like, I'm like, at a certain point, I'm like, wait, does that happen in Ascani Sun? Does that yeah. happen in Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix? Does that happen in the Cable solo? Does that happen in Blood and Metal? Does that happen in Excusioner's Song? What do we know when he's first appeared before Excusioner's Song? The answer yeah. is it's a nightmare. But now that we he's have. the chaos bringer. He, he is. He brought <laughs> chaos to my brain, and I'm not sure it will ever leave me well the nice thing about doing strife before cable is he really does give you the run at like the the bones of the cable story yeah i thought doing rachel and strife before cable because cable is straight up going to be the most complicated character to explain yeah. to someone who hasn't done the reading like we used to have to talk about irene merriweather and the scimitar before uh, when you talk about not cable. the scimitar <laughs> we have to talk about Cable and Blacksmith. We have to talk about Cable. Is that the first time a human has pronounced that name out loud? I'm sure it's just Blacksmith, but it's spelled Blacksmith, like the girl group Black, if you remember. It was (laughs) Q-U-E. Then you have to talk about Ozymandias. Then you have to talk about, like, and not the Watchmen one. Don't get confused. I'm just saying, (laughs) there's a lot to deal with. You have to talk about all of the... I'm talking about that time he was really sexy in the late 90s and it was I mean he's always sexy but he he's got really sexy. hot suddenly right like in that sort of like Joe Mad into yeah. Alan Davis yeah you said era. you're not a big Joe Mad fan but I love that look that's uh, a good cable I'll yeah, give it that it's yeah a good no. cable. it's a good cyclops I, I have to say cable. actually my issue my issue with Joe Mad is how he draws the women has what is how he draws the women if I'm keeping it 100 oh like, yeah I mean you know I, I'm bad at noticing that. (laughs) (laughs) It's just like, I just feel like that's when the Psylocke tits out, ass out pose like truly became comical. Is it Alex was talking about how he got grounded for the, the Psylocke card he had. And it's like, it was a, um, that was an Emma Frost card, but yeah, yeah. (laughs) That's pretty tame. That's just the one where she's like sitting there in her lingerie on the Ottoman. No, but Psylocke was constantly, I mean, they called it the Psylocke pose for a reason. The like, here's my tits, here's my ass. But he also, that's when she gets the Crimson Dawn, right? Mm -hmm. And so she's always like on all fours or hunched over as she's like melting into shadows. And with, yeah. yeah. I have to say, I was just, I was like getting together Betsy and Rachel supporting material after last week's episode to show people on Twitter. 
and it now feels sick and twisted to read any any comic in which Betsy is in Kanon's body is now impossible for me to read without right. feeling uncomfortable. Not that I ever felt great about it, but well, now she's a person. Like now she really that Kanon's does, a yeah, person who exactly. really has like a who we know, which is I think one of the great triumphs of this era is it's like really making her a person. That's an amazing. It's now that's so exactly much more unpleasant. Deal with it. Yeah. 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 <laughs> Listen, I was a big, big fan of how Teeny wrote them in Excalibur 19. Like, there's no way to do it perfectly, and I'm sure not everyone's going to love right. it because there's just no there's just no good way to handle this storyline. But having Kanon say, this isn't something to be solved, it just is, yeah. is the only way forward, yeah. right? Because it's like, okay, these characters are now tied forever, no matter what we do. Right. In a weird way, that's realistic, right? Like, right. It, you, you, in, trauma is inflicted, and it's like, and that trauma ties you to people that you didn't choose, and that's right. I mean, we didn't even really talk about it with Strife, but like in Cable six, seven, and eight, Strife takes Cable's body, right? Like, that's yeah. like a yeah. a plot, right? Because after he gets killed, he becomes like a psychic entity and inhabits Cable, right? And we endure. Tyler, Tyler, Tyler has the most amazing mutant power, which is that he explains retcons. Like, mm, yeah, <laughs> he can project images of the past. Like he's kind of got Mirage's power, but solely as a plot device. Uh, <laughs> he also has that alias, Mister Tolliver, where he's Mr. like, Tolliver, you know, he was Genesis. I just want to say I have thought about this a lot ever since House of X two. Is when I was like a teenager and came up with my own little like alternate universe X Men thing. I stole the moira married to trask thing from age of apocalypse uh -huh. but i had her as a mole who was giving intel to the x-men under the name mrs tolliver that's good which i thought was cute <laughs> and now i'm just sort of like that absolutely could now be part of like the moira x chronology yeah <laughs> but in any case tyler we covered this briefly in the character file but tyler is jen scott's son maybe also cable's son maybe also strife's son unclear how that all goes down the right. point is strife kidnaps and brainwashes him and cable's forced to kill him so it's yeah. unpleasant for cable yeah it's, it's great but, <laughs> that is the thing about like cable and strife and gene and madeline and betsy and Connor. like these are all people who didn't choose to have this thing done to them but now it's like it's you and me baby like there's yeah. no way out of it the nice thing about the Krakoan era in general is it really does create a status quo. I mean, it, it explicitly says that it's trying to do this, but it really does create a stage whereby which real reconciliations and that can happen, can yeah. happen where it really is like there are these problematic moments in the past it by the simple virtue of the fact that it can literally bring back these characters who are dead the characters who were really wronged you can bring them back and right I mean, that's why the Madeline plot is so distressing because she's yes. the character who <laughs> most deserves a reconciliation yeah and is denied it it's denied her and therefore denied to the reader and which maybe is a good way to segue into what strife might be up to now that's a great way to segue into what strife <laughs> might be up to now so i've mentioned this in passing a few times on this podcast the biggest reason why i'm not doing a cable episode until after jerry duggan's cable series concludes with issue 12 is because i have been strife pilled <laughs> i fully believe that teen cable is actually strife i could be wrong and it could all just be like, I, because here's, I will say, 
I recall once in the same year two great disappointments that befell me. I was watching the first season of Korra and I was watching the second season of Game of Thrones. Mm. And as a big Song of Ice and Firehead who is very mixed and lukewarm at best on that TV show. You've had quite the, a ride on that TV the show. The cast <laughs> is great. Nothing wrong with the cast. Love all those actors. I don't like that adaptation of those books at all. Point is... When they introduced Una Chaplin's OC character who hooks up with Rob Stark, Talisa Mager, who replaces the character Jane Westerling from the book, I had developed this whole theory that hmm. what they were going to do was have Talisa Mager be a cover identity that Jane Westerling was using as a spy and that they were going to conflate the character of Jane Westerling with her mother, Sybil Spicer, who betrays them. And I thought that she was going to be... Like, and this is why I thought the love story scenes were so poorly written, because I thought that <laughs> right. it was all a con, uh -huh. right? Uh-huh. And so when she turned out to actually just know we renamed her Talisa Mager because we gave her a new backstory, which is stupid, by the way. You could give Jane Westerling a Valentine backstory. Jane Westerling is Valentine. Read the book. Partially, anyway, because her grandmother's Valentine. Her grandmother's Maggie the Frog, who gives Cersei the prophecy. Doesn't matter. The point is... Oh, my God. The point is, this is not in a Song of Ice and Fire podcast. The point is, that's what I thought. And then similarly on Korra, I thought that Asami was going to secretly be an equalist and betray them. And that would have been great. I actually like fully stopped watching that show after season one because I was so disappointed by the fact that A, she wasn't. And the writers even said that was the original plan and they decided they liked oh. the character too much. They liked the character too much and they kept her and made her a good guy. And that right. wussed out. Now, listen, in the end, I guess it led to lesbians. So that's great. But <laughs> right. uh, to me, I was just like, that's so obviously because the equalists have a point. You could make her a sympathetic character. But anyway. I'm digressing. The point is, I, I am prone. I am prone uh -huh. to coming up with ornate theories about how so-and-so is not right. who they say they are or is a spy well, or whatever. The nice thing about Strife is um, ornateness fits, retcons fit, and lesbians fit. So we're all, we've got the pieces. We've got the so, pieces to be Strife-pilled here, Connor. Bring us it. home. <laughs> picture it. Westchester, New York, 2020. I'm up late because Jerry lives in Los Angeles. Jerry is on this podcast talking about Wolverine, and I ask him about Strife in the context of the Madeline stuff, because who am I, obviously, right? Right, So right. Jerry stops himself from saying too much about Strife. Right. He starts talking about Strife, and then he says, I shouldn't say anything else about Strife. Right. And I'm like... Okay, sure, because here's the thing. Now, that could be explained by the fact that Strife shortly thereafter was revealed as the villain of the arc, right? So right. that could be all, that could be all that Jerry wasn't trying to do. But my friend Tycon, Alia Steger on Twitter, who is a great follow if you're an X-Men fan, Tycon sent me a message like, why do you think Jerry paused about Strife? And I was like, <laughs> I, I don't know. I assume because Strife is going to pop up or something. And then Tycon sends me like a month later that page from Ten of Swords where, and this right. was right when it had come out. And I was like so high on, I mean, that issue is also the one where like Saturnine is just like doing her thing at her like dinner right. that she's throwing. Please do these weird din dance competitions. Yeah. And, and like, I'm obviously <laughs> as a Saturnine head, like I was just like riding high. It's like Brian is yelling at Wolverine. It's all it's like all the Excalibur, the classic Excalibur shit that I fucking love. So I was like not paying attention. But there is that moment where Cable, Teen Cable breaks a cup and 
cuts his thumb and puts his thumb in his mouth like, ow. Right. And then we see Apocalypse looking at him kind of like, huh. That's weird. That's suspicious. That's weird. Cable looks away and goes, (laughs) shit. Shit. Because it's his left hand. Because it's his left hand, which should be made of metal. Right. It should be made of metal. So here's the rest of it. Throughout this series... And I'm going to be perfectly honest. I did not like Teen Cable when he first arrived. I thought the extermination event was bad. And I have not reread it. So it's possible he started doing this then. But he never refers to Cable as, like, to Old Man Cable. They always call him Old Man Cable. He's, like, 50. But, like, to, (laughs) to Old Man Cable as me or my future self or whatever. It's always the other guy. Which you could take as, like a character beat where he's just mm. distancing himself from the older self who he did murder, if we recall. Right. It is a murder. It is weird that the text tries to sell us that it's not. Yeah. <laughs> well, what the cable, what this cable series has done is made it clear that older cable knew it was coming, had anticipated it and knew that it needed to happen and is still alive somehow. So it's not really right. something we super need to worry this about. This is right? the other thing about Strife is he dies at the end of every story he's in and yet always comes back. And yet always comes back, much <laughs> right. like his father apocalypse. Right. Like right, that is right. sort of what he does. So, well, also, that's a Summers thing. How many yeah, you times can't kill all the, summers, you cannot right. kill a Summers? You can't kill Rachel. Wagons you for can't days, kill Nathan. Can't kill that's you can't kill, yeah. you cannot kill them. You can, literally the only one. Oh my God, no, you can't even kill Alex because they just sent him to Mutant X. No, yeah. And yeah, then he either. came back with Nurse Annie. You can't kill any of them. So, the only ones you can kill are you can kill. Um, no, shit. I'm thinking about it. Corsair <laughs> dies and comes back. I don't Corsair think those, dies and comes back. I don't yep. think those grandparents have ever died, even though they've been threatened with death. Like, it's it's the greys that get wiped out. But yeah, the you can is, kill a grey really easy. They do They do. The only back. Summers who's actually stayed dead, and it wouldn't shock me if she just showed up in a spaceship one day, is Catherine Ann. Oh, she's out there. There's no way There's she's There's no way not. she's not out there. Right. No, exactly. She's got a counter empire. She's going to take out Xandra one of these days. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's like, who is this? Like, who is the golden-haired human from beyond the stars? And it's like, my name is Catherine Ann Summers. Oh, you're, you know what? I just said Tyler couldn't be a Summers because he's blonde, and there is a blonde out there. <laughs> Havoc is blonde, too. Oh, that's right. Oh, what am I thinking? That's right. Yeah. Oh, man. So. Um, anyway, Strife. Anyway, yes. we digress. Strife. <laughs> so, um, so there's that. There's the other guy stuff. There's the fact that Teen Cable is most drawn to Esme, who's the evil cuckoo, which is why it would be funny if he was Strife, right? Right. I think there's a very specific moment it happens, actually. I think it's the moment at the end of X-Force. The Brisson X-Force. The recent Ed Brisson X-Force. So the second arc of that X-Force book is Kid Strife shows up as the villain. Right. Um, And he and Cable are sort of pinballing back and forth between the 40th century and the present day. In Transia, they're dealing with the aftermath of the Ahab stuff. This is where it's like, okay, so the Ascani timeline wasn't destroyed. Yeah, that's why I was like, I'm not sure. Yeah, it has to be. Doesn't matter. Do not worry about that (laughs) at all. Truly. Don't think about it. Do Um, not think about that. (laughs) But... So he's he steals a bunch of bunch of mutants from Transia so he can train them in the future to be his new mutant liberation army. Nothing good ever happens in Transia ever, no, literally. Bad news. Yeah. Not Wondegore. <laughs> it's just like not a place to be. Um he seems weirdly obscure. He also like invaded Latveria once. Uh, he loves know. a fictional Eastern European He loves nation. a palace, I think. He loves a yeah, castle. Yeah. He loves a it's architectural. Um 
anyway, so there's a moment where he has uh, Cable, Kid Cable trapped. He's accelerated the the techno organic virus, so he's like his body is like spilled into the whole cell. Um, but they stop Strife, and they have Strife in the cage, and Kid Cable decides they have to erase his mind. Well, Rachel's going to kill him. And Rachel, yes, that's the other thing. Rachel has been, because <laughs> he knows Rachel as Mother Ascani. He's like, that's right. Mother Ascani. And he does the thing he always does where he, like, he reactivates her houndness. He gives her every reason to hate his guts. Right. Um, he teams up with Ahab. I mean, right. it's like, you know, doesn't he? <laughs> yeah, it's kind of. They're like kind that. of overlapping in a yeah, weird way. It's like yeah, it's like a whole, right. I, again, I've, I've forgotten a lot of this. I will need um, to reread it for the Cable episode. It's fun. But. I reread it for this, and it's like, it was harder to follow the first time, but the second time it's like, oh, I get what's happening. Because it, yeah. it is shunting back and forth between the two timelines constantly. Yeah, I did reread that page where he's like, no, Rachel, to preserve the timeline, <laughs> right. we have to make sure he survives, but we also have to wipe his memories of all these encounters. And you're like, encounters. wait, what? And then we don't see it happen. That's what's right. fascinating. So he pushes both of these characters who he has every reason to hate to the point where they're making, once again, the most morally compromised decision. We don't see it happen. There's a boy who looks like Kid Cable in a cage who does who's just had his mind wiped and there's another boy who looks like Kid Cable walking into a portal and he looks and he says I can't wait to see what the future is and he gives a very weird smile and that's the end of that book and it takes us into the Cable run where I agree with you Cable is acting he is acting like a camp version of Cable right like he is like yeah. calling Scott and Jean mom and dad which is like where did that come from? To be fair, it is explained in Extermination. Teen Cable is told, I think maybe by Rachel. I forget who tells him. Oh, he knows. He yeah. knows that they're slim and red, which in the old timeline, he didn't find out until he was absolutely. old Cable coming but, back. But he is absolutely leaning into the leave it to beaverness of yes, it. Yes, well, like... and it's that's the thing. People... People have been annoyed, and this is fair, people have been annoyed about how Gene has been a little sidelined in the first year or so of this era. I think that that's a fair critique. She does a lot of cooking and cleaning on the moon and all of that. Right. The June Cleaver energies. But I think that that's exactly what it is. I think that Scott and Gene have both taken something of a backseat as parent figures for Cable, who, as Saturnine tells him by giving him the fool card, is the protagonist, right, of that right. arc. And if you go back, all that Strife has ever wanted right. <laughs> is for Scott and Gene to be his parents who love him. Yep. It is his obsession. He's so of got course, his fantasy. He's of genetically, course, yeah. <laughs> that's what he would be doing. And he would be like, yeah, let's have family dinner. Like, that's all he wants to do. And if it is strife, the bond that he has forged with Rachel is fascinating because Rachel is his creator. Right, yeah. And his mother is Scani, his arch nemesis, and all of this stuff that's really, really fascinating. And what's really cool about it is if you pay it off, which maybe they're not planning on doing like i could get talisa magert again i could really have egg on my face about this one <laughs> maybe it was a mistake maybe they weren't supposed to bleed in that one panel he has since it's had his arm so ripped conspicuous. off well so here's the thing so people are like in sword he had a metal arm that got ripped off i here is my pitch i think <laughs> so first thing i did was go back and check when scott brings the kids to chandelure to the beach guess who has two flesh arms on chandelure cable does <laughs> Cable right. sure does. Go back and look. And I don't think it's an artist error. Now, after Apocalypse saw him bleed from the wrong hand, <laughs> suddenly he has a metal arm in sword. 
I think Strife committed. I think we are going to see. He just brought down the skill saw. I think he's gonna, we're going to see a 128 hours kind of moment in a flashback because he has the arm because Cable left the arm for him. Right. Right. So I think he Which just has, put it By on. the way, we didn't even talk about this confusing thing. The arm has a device in it called Professor, which used to be the ship that they lived in in X-Factor. Which used to be Prosh, the ship that lived with them on X-Factor. And then in the Grey Mountain right. habitat that Cable lives in in the 90s, right. Professor is the AI that he talks which to. Which becomes Avalon. It's and all And then a goes back in time and becomes Prosh in X-Men Forever. The first X-Men Forever miniseries by Fabian Nuciesa, where it carries everybody through time and space. Do not worry about that. <laughs> the point is... Also, another caveat. Cable can use his power to push the techno-organic virus all the way down his arm. Yes. It is a thing we've seen him do. Yes. So it is possible <laughs> that that is just Cable in a moment of zen who has basically a fully organic arm. Similarly at the beach, maybe he has a fully organic arm. It's a thing he can do. But... Maybe, but <laughs> I think he's Strife. I think he may not have known he was Strife because of the mind wipe until oh. a certain point. Like, I think that he may now be realizing he's Strife or he knew all along. There are a bunch of different options. Right. Here's why I like it. First of all, it will make that series, which is already very, very good, a lot of fun to reread. Right. Also, if it is the case, two things are true. One, that's how we keep both characters. Right. Because if Teen Cable is strife on a redemption arc, then you can keep him around and get regular Cable back. Also, it then raises more profoundly than little Gabby, who has a healing factor, right. the dilemma of the cloning protocols that they've put in place regarding Madeline, who is Cable's mother, let's right. not forget, <laughs> right? So there is a lot of synergy there, but... In the most recent issue of Cable, we explicitly see the policy for the first time, which is that anyone who is a duplicate, there's one person who's designated as the main person and the other person cannot be resurrected. Which is monstrous. <laughs> which is evil. Oh, yeah. Which is monstrous, like, just the not just theoretically, but they know people who are clones. Like well, what's wild is there are two blinks. Right. <laughs> so we still don't know which Blink is on sword. Is that 616 Blink who died in Phalanx Covenant and then Celine brought her back from she wasn't really dead or whatever and she hung out with the new mutants and whatever right. in the DNA run? Like, is it her or is it Exiles Blink from the Age of Apocalypse who's one of the sole survivors of the Age of Apocalypse timeline? And I mean, honestly, the most fundamental betrayal of that is the reality that it denies which is that these bodies are clone bodies. These bodies yeah. are not originals. Right. Like right. They're all cloning themselves <laughs> now and just uploading their brains. The yeah. only difference between Jean before she dies and Jean after she dies and Jean and Madeline is that Madeline is her own person yeah. with her own mind. Sinister is correct about the hypocrisy of this. Like, you can knock out as many copies of Sinister as you want. They're just as legitimate in that none are really legitimate. Like, right. you, it's really the Star Trek That's why Trek it doesn't matter which yeah. Sinister, like, people were like, are we ever going to find out which Sinister won the rock, paper, scissor to go to Literally other Literally like, does not matter. No, it's of course the, we're not. That's the whole point of the scene. It's the prestige all over again, That's right? That's the <laughs> point. It serves a dual purpose of letting us absolve Sinister of the things that he's been retconned right. to do that are a little too much. Well, Gillen did that whole thing at the end of his arc where, yeah. like, Sinister kills himself, like, 40 times in the space of 24 pages yeah right? <laughs> the big thing is though that it 
shows you the completely arbitrary nature of this policy they've set up. And when you think about it for like, we're supposed to feel this way, right? Right. Yeah, it's not. Yeah. Not only is it monstrous because we know Madeline Pryor is a real person. We know Strife is a real person. We know that there are characters who are real people. We know that both Blinks are real people and you shouldn't pick one <laughs> who gets to be the one who gets resurrected. This is how you get Strife's in the first place. Right. <laughs> this is how you get Strife's in the first place. And I think that's the point. Right. Right. And I think that's what they'll be forced to reckon with if it is Strife and they realize that this boy that they've come to love is the fake Nathan. Right. And that's why I think it would be good. But the real kicker is at the end of the data page, because everybody said, what about the cuckoos? Right. And the first thing it says is if your mutant power involves having multiple bodies or being duplicates, then you're allowed. So the cuckoos and multiple men are allowed. And it's like. Oh, so you just made exceptions for people you like. Right. And I'm sure that the second (laughs) little Gabby gets shot in the brain bad enough that she can't heal it, they'll be like, well, technically she has DNA from this. They'll come up with a reason because they want to. The only people that they have used it to not bring back pointedly are Maddie Pryor, who they are afraid of, mm-hmm. Strife, who they are afraid of, <laughs> and Evan Sabiner, who they are afraid of. Right. <laughs> Those are the three people who just, yeah. oops. Actually, Evan and, Evan and Strife would have a lot to say to each other. They sure would. But Evan is a character that, especially now that Apocalypse has done kind of a face turn, we can have another Apocalypse around who might turn into evil Apocalypse. We just right. fixed evil Apocalypse. Like, he's a threat. <laughs> That would be fun. It would be fun. <laughs> Evan would be a good antagonist for Strife, actually. I should say I'm not in the X office. Is what I can't. <laughs> <laughs> and if you want me not to say these things on podcasts, you should put me in the X office. <laughs> well, listen, call us both. I think we yeah. both have a lot of thoughts. And I'll just I'll just shut up about any speculation you, and just start. Could you imagine we like turn the corner on Strife? Strife makes a big comeback. That's the 2020s. <laughs> If Marvel wants me to write any goddamn thing that I have ever suggested on this podcast, I will come running and this podcast will change only a little bit in that I will stop talking about anything I think might happen. And we can just talk about what has happened and we'll, I'll just shut the fuck up. You know what I mean? So just to be clear, I'm in. I'm in. Call me. I mean, listen, we did a big Iceman episode. Now you get to write an Iceman story. We're manifesting. We're manifesting. <laughs> That's- yeah, it's uh, it's dark magics. It's, exactly, it's, go- it's the goblin force. It's goblin. <laughs> it's not the goblin force. We don't do that. But we didn't even talk about Bet Noir, by the way. Oh my god. <laughs> Bet Noir, which, by the way, translates to Black Beast, right. is an anti-Phoenix parasite that inhabits Bishop. Yeah, not yeah. great. And strife. strife. It then links with strife, which is sure. that's a little it less is, problematic. It is sort of the most. It is so, don't worry about it, that when Strife next appeared, he appears in a bar called Betty Noir. Called Betty Noirs. And that's literally just, that's literally them being like, yeah, we read it. We're not going to deal with it. It's rainfire (laughs) levels of don't worry about it. Like, it's just a plot that you will never have to think about again. That time time Roberto had a mullet. As you live. (laughs) Except it wasn't Roberto. Except it wasn't Roberto, yep. 
or Roberto, as I've learned it's Roberto, pronounced. Roberto, yeah, it's Portuguese. No, with an H, which I love, because it's Brazilian Portuguese, so it's, he's yeah, Ho-Berto, which I think how you is say it delightful. Which is pure, that speaks to his character so much, right? Like, yeah. his name becomes the index of Oh, I'm just obsessed with his name starting with Ho, because I think that's really funny. <laughs> oh, I see. For the character. <laughs> I meant, I went too high-minded, sorry. Yeah, no, you did. I was just saying, the fact that his name is Roberto is, like, really funny to me. <laughs> Roberto da Costa is my understanding. If I <laughs> fucked that up, my bad. But I've been calling him like Roberto da Costa, like a fucking idiot on this podcast. <laughs> right. well. So, you know, that's on me. Yeah. So the fact that Teen Cable takes a while to tell anybody Strife is back is also key when that's right. like something you really ought to report right. quickly. <laughs> I mean, the other antagonist you could always bring in for Strife is Strife, right? Like that's... Right. They're, 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 like his future self will... Well, the idea that Teen Cable is Strife trying not to become Strife, I think, is really compelling. Right. Yeah, that's like that's a similar story they did with Iron Lad, right? Where he was. Yeah, like, it would be very Iron Lad, but like you yeah. know, I don't care about Kang the Conqueror, and I care about Strife, so <laughs> this would be fun. Kang is. I like Kang, but <laughs> I, I don't have like a strong objection to Kang. But like, talk about a confusing fucking character. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm not reading enough Avengers and Fantastic Four to like get a handle on that aka ramatot you're gonna have to deal AKA with when Immortus, you do an apocalypse. aka uh, yeah you i know i know that's an episode Kang. that's an episode that will happen someday and i will fully <laughs> you know what you have to come back for that one. i would do apocalypse, apocalypse you should come back fun. for apocalypse yeah. that would be a good time because i really fully will lose my mind he's and a it 90s will boy be funny. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it will at least be funny well my position and i've always said this is i'm like there are two good apocalypse stories, and they're the first one and Ten of Swords, and that's it. <laughs> oh, come on. Age of... Even the one we were talking about, the 66. AOA is good, but that's an alternate reality. He steals a baby. Like, that's... He's classic. Uh, like, there's so much good... Well, okay, the 12 stuff is not... The 12 is awful. <laughs> this is the problem with the 12, is it kind of spoils all of the Ascani stuff I, retroactively. I, yeah. Because it makes it all so meaningless. It's just a shaggy dog story that ends in a terrible storyline. So you're just yeah. kind of like, well, okay. Like, like like we said, Further Adventures is great. The design work on Apocalypse. If you haven't read Further Adventures of Cyclops and Jean, you should read that. It's gorgeous. The like the inking, it's some of the craziest inking you'll ever see in a comic. Pick that up with the the origin of Mr. Sinister. I like in a I think it's Ascani Sun or maybe it's Cable, the first solo. I forget which one it is. When we see that in the far future when he's with Strife, he's like a withered old man and the apocalypse oh, yeah. body is now like a shell that he opens yeah. like a mecca. <laughs> he's like an old man in a Gundam. That's really yeah. fucked up. And I enjoy and he's that. He's a woman sometimes. There's like... lots of I mean, listen, I, I it's not that I don't enjoy apocalypse it's just that i would say most stories involving apocalypse are not good he's kind of that thing where it's like especially in the 90s it happens a lot where it's like literally any villain could have done this it's just it's vamping i feel the same way about mr sinister i think mr sinister yeah, is great mr. under sinister. claremont and then i think mr sinister is fun in like a trolley way under niciesa and then after age of apocalypse i think mr sinister <laughs> sucks until kieran gillen visual reconfigures yeah. the whole character but yeah agreed you know yeah. are there any other strife stories we should talk about before we go to the reader questions there's, i mean there's we should mention them to mention them like there is the messiah war stuff which looks um, yeah it looks like nothing else like the there's the moment really where hope summers becomes strife in an alternate timeline yeah she looks cool in the outfit <laughs> 
for some reason, Strife and Bishop get paired a lot. It's when Bishop's evil for a while, which yeah. is really yeah. stupid, and which they've clearly just decided to ignore. <laughs> right. <laughs> so don't worry about it. Like, we are now at a place where, like, talk about a character who they're just like, no, 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 do not worry about that. Because with Emma, it's the one thing. It's like, don't worry about Inhumans versus X-Men, right? And they're just mm-hmm. like, we're just not going to worry about that because it doesn't make sense for the character and it's stupid and we're just going to move on. Bishop, it's like 10 years of publication that they mostly are just asking yeah. you not to worry about. I mean, it's hard because this is not a Bishop episode, but... He came back in the Humphreys X-Force and there were some attempts made like to, to re... But they right. really fucked that character starting yeah. in Civil War and then just it just got worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. It just sort of... The nice thing about it is it ends... It really did put an end to the whole like Bishop's come back to change everything. It like... fixed that, but now I feel like Bishop doesn't have a storyline. That that's true. Yeah. You know, I, well, I mean, Marauders is doing some interesting stuff. It's early days, but yeah, he looks great and it's fun to have him on the team. But <laughs> I wouldn't say like he doesn't have an overarching storyline anymore yeah, yeah, because yeah, yeah. his storyline has been resolved. But it was resolved in such a way that made him a bad guy for a really long time. And I don't know. It was just not great. So I'm glad that we've got him back to basics. Yeah. But it is one of those things where it's just like smile and nod and don't worry about it. So don't worry about the Bishop and Strife story because right. it doesn't make a lick of sense. Uh, it all right. ties into... <laughs> Bishop trying to kill Hope, which is a plot for a really long time. Right, because Cable is raising her, and so Strife Strife becomes a natural antagonist. The problem is that Strife gets segmented off into a lot of Cable stories, whereas, to me, he really shines when he's up against his parents, right? Or up right. against, like, Xavier. And that really never happens again. Like, that really... No. After the Ascani Sun stuff, and even really before that, his story really is Executioner's Song, and he's never at that level again. Like, as we said, like... He was the big villain of the 90s, and then he's to the point where there's people listening to this right now who've never heard of him until... Never, <laughs> ever heard of this character, right? Yeah. No, the legacy virus, which is the driving plot of the entirety of the 90s, is Strife's thing. Like, he did that. Right. Like, guess what, bitches? I'm going to ruin your <laughs> right. past so that my future is easier to control. Right, yeah. It's the first decimation, right? It's like, I'm going to decimate the mutant population. Literally fuck every one of you, yeah. It is really just nihilism. Like, the end of Age of, of um, Execution Song is really nihilistic. In the original story, yeah, it feels like he just came back in time to ruin everything because exactly. he hates... Including himself. Like, yeah. he is completely, yeah. like, this is the end of it. Yeah. Yeah. The real thing that happens is as soon as they understand that he's a clone and isn't the real Nathan, Gene and Scott do what Gene and Scott do with clones, which is decide that he's not a real person. <laughs> yep, yep. Like, they madeline him immediately. Yep. They're just like, Absolutely. oh, well, that's a trick. <laughs> right. <laughs> You're not a person. You're not it's a like, person. I've You're a piece of me that was used to trap us. It's like, I've lived a whole life. <laughs> that's why I'm here. That is why I'm doing this. You have. We didn't talk about the end of Executioner's Song where the the moment is replicated, where... Uh, Cable puts a detonator in his hand. He's like, I'm going to take care of him. You have to hit this button and kill us because it's the only way to stop it. Cyclops has to do it. Right. And Cyclops hits the button. (laughs) He kills his kids again. He has realized (laughs) throughout the course of the battle, it's never explicitly said, Strife calls Nathan, Nathan Dayspring. They have that sort of exchange. But none of the future adventures have been shown yet. So we don't know what that means. And Scott kills them. Right? <laughs> as far as he knows. Uh-huh. And implies to Gene that was Nathan. And she's like, no, you don't. And it's like, Gene, were you not paying attention? There was a whole yeah. monologue. Right. Also, there were like, several monologues. He did creepy Oedipal stuff to you for like six hours, calling you mother. Did you yeah. not? Like, it's like, put two and two together. He's all, we didn't even mention the fact they're on the moon is because that's where 
apocalypse infected their child. Like yes, this is literally apocalypse's right. old base. Yeah. It's also where Gene died in the Dark right. Phoenix saga. <laughs> like it's a whole thing, right? So it's just like Gene, hun, my what, love, put two and two finish together. The please. math here, Gene. Yeah. yeah. What aren't you getting? I mean, again, like there's a Gertrude thing, but there's a lot of Hamlet, a lot of Hamlet in Strife. Yeah, that's funny. I don't quite, I didn't quite see it that way, but I believe you. Yeah, it's just like your your parents are these great heroes and they didn't love you. Right. And like, why didn't you love me is Strife's constant question. Like, yeah. How yeah. could you have neglected me for this long? Like, even his, like, the Zero, the weird robot that has been, like, his constant companion yes. who can't speak. Right? Like, My tongueless valet. <laughs> It's just great. Oh, man, I love him. God bless. Alshie has big spiky nipples. Did we mention those? Yeah, we They're didn't important. even talk about, I mean, his costume. There's a question oh, we're gonna, about we're gonna. Yeah. yeah, there's lots of questions that we're going to get right. into. Oh, okay. All right. I think that is where we'll take it right now, in fact. And then after the questions, we can do some dramatic readings oh, wow. from Strike okay. Strike Files, right? Because <laughs> I think that we would, I think that would be fun. But first... Jay Edidin of Jay and Miles Explains the X-Men writes, we all know that Nate Gray is Cable's twink counterpart. What would Strife's be like? Oh. Great question. He would be Kid Cable. He would be Kid Cable. Well, I mean, right. Like we've we've met him and he's on the page, in my opinion. I do think though, if it was like Nate Gray style, like in that 90s moment, he would have just been Nate Gray, but gayer so it would have been like a lot more like mesh tops and yep. like although nate is not afraid of a mesh top uh, but that's it. what i'm saying more <laughs> yeah. but it would have been like more like <laughs> yeah. push it further gother maybe like maybe like, like a nipple piercing like you know yeah, like it would yeah. have been we're almost in a crow place almost in a place of crow i would say yeah he's consistently styled whenever we see him young he has much longer hair then he has like then a flowing, Cable does, yeah. He loves a flowing lock moment. Yeah, so it would be the 90s, so it would be kind of like a wet look, I think. Yeah, yeah. What's the name of that guy who was Andy Warhol's model all the time? He kind of would have that energy. Joe D'Alessandro? Joe D'Alessandro, yeah, like that kind of that kind of energy. Which, by uh, the way, that's just Shatterstar. So you would have to like distinguish a little bit between oh, he would these hook 90s up with Shatterstar. Like, oh, that would be, in a second. <laughs> yeah. Please, no, that... Oh, that's a plot. That's a plot is <laughs> that's a plot. Unfortunately, he's a teen. Like so. But you'd have to like. So if you if I don't know, if you rapid age teen cable and suddenly he's like 25 because he hopped in the time stream and then he comes back out. Remember how Strife killed Richter's dad? Oh, we didn't even talk about that. Yeah. The re- in the in the early run of X-Force <laughs> <That's> right. <laughs> starting in New Mutants before it turns into X-Force, Richter hates Cable because he thinks that Cable murdered his father because he saw the face of the man who murdered his father, but it was Strife. Right. He keeps doing that. He has one move, but it's a great move. <laughs> I know. So what if a young hot Strife steals Richter's man? That would be That would amazing. be really funny. Yeah. He's linked into all of them, right? Because he also, um, he burns down Warpath's home, right? Like He genocides Warpath's tribe. That's it's right. Like, yeah, it's yeah, a lot yeah. going on, yeah. That's why they all come back in Necrotia. Oh, we didn't even talk about where Strife's in hell with Warpath. That one. Oh, yeah. There's a whole story where, well, look it up. Yeah. Uh, I don't know. Do you have anything to say about it? Not really. It's fun. Not it really. Looks, the it's... art is kind of cool, but Strife is in hell. He's messing with Warpath, but it's all just a trick from Blackheart to make Strife's stay in hell even worse blackheart one of the dumbest but also best <laughs> 90s i, I adore always played as blackheart, blackheart. same in, same in, in marvel superheroes and all those games yeah. the capcom games <laughs> blackheart notably an and nascenti creation which 
makes perfect sense when you think about it for more than oh, 10 Oh, and seconds. played by Wes Bentley in the Ghost Rider movie, who could play a young Strife. That would be a good... Wes Bentley can play anything he <laughs> wants to play in my world. You can add the beeping in there. Wes Bentley can play and then just a long beep. Wes Bentley can play <laughs> me like a fiddle. But so, we digress. So that's the thing, like, Jay, it's a great question. Thank you for asking. I think that it would be very, like, hot topic goth. Right. It becomes a way to critique his silliness. Is like, Yeah, you would want to take it to a place of camp. Like, we, yeah. like I said at the very beginning of the episode. And, like, Nate Gray is, like, very much, here's a 90s cool guy protagonist. Right, right. And you would take it to here's a 90s gay villain here's like you would teen, that's what you would do here's the you know? teen who built that suit right like that's like right yeah yeah <laughs> what kind of kid is like drawing little like fashion designs yeah. it's like more spikes like that's well, who you, you know alexander mcqueen like as a kid yeah like, exactly yeah. you know that kind of that kind of energy <laughs> Riley Daniels writes, Most marvelous host Connor and most esteemed of guests Anthony. Your episode together was the first Cerebro episode I listened to and clearly it made a mark on me as here I am 20 plus episodes later still loving every episode. (laughs) You set the tone for me for a space where some truly in-depth character discussions can take place where a queer reading of the text is the norm rather than the exception, which is carried over into the Discord server, which is such a delightful space to inhabit. So, of course, I must mark the occasion with my first ever question to the show. No pressure, huh? <laughs> Strife's a formative character in my X-Men reading experience, as one of the first ever series I read in comics was Executioner's Song, which I got in reprints in the early 90s. And although there's a lot to talk about there, I'm sure you've already talked about the baby food incident. So instead, I want to go a bit conceptual <laughs> and ask about Strife being a mirror or a dark reflection of Cable. How much worth is there in viewing him primarily through this lens, seeing him as an expression of the trauma and complexes of their shared backstory? Where one became a reasonably balanced hero, at least by 90s anti-hero standards, the other openly expresses on page his resentment and hatred of those who have, or who he sees as, having harmed him. He's not quite a mumma-dry anti-self, but comes close. Is this what he is, solely or in part? A rambling question, but one I hope you can extract some thoughts out of with any luck. As ever, keep up the good work. Hey, I'm Riley. Hey. Which is a reference to (laughs) Alison Blair's coked-out moment. (laughs) So that's a great question. It was a bit long, but I don't mind. No, that was fine. I love a long question. That was great, Riley. It gives me time to think. So thank you, Riley. Um, Riley is also a, a fun... She's great in the in the Discord. So it's always nice when one of you crazy kids writes in. <laughs> I think that... Well, there's a, obviously there's a lot there, right? Like, and this speaks to also... I mean, we keep talking about how he's gay. He reads as gay. And it's like, why? <laughs> Well, and it's because it's like <laughs> ressentiment, right? Yeah. Like it's that bad, it's like that Nietzschean bad faith There's thing. the narcissist thing happening, right? The evil double and like... Yeah, like I hate to always bring it to a place of Buffy, but like that is just where I often bring it. But like the Buffy and Faith thing, where her name literally is Faith, as in bad faith, as in ressentiment, <laughs> like, right. and she's gay. Right, yeah. Like that's, you know, like she... It's like, the Star it Trek is, Mirrorverse thing. Yeah, yeah, like the mirror universe, people are always gay. It goes back to the fact, as we were saying earlier, like if you go back to the 80s, Claremont's allowed to play with gay themes with the villains, not really with the heroes, more explicitly. That's just always true. It's always going to be true. Every Disney villain is a fucking faggot. Like that's just how <laughs> this goes. You know what I mean? So the basic gist is Strife is gay because... The way that you signify a villain, particularly in a superhero comic book, is to give big, fruity monologues, right? Right. right. Like Ozymandias from Watchmen is gay. Yeah. (laughs) Like it's that 
thing. It's the homoeroticism of superhero comics gone wrong because superhero comics are inherently homoerotic. They right. are an evolution of like Bob Miser's physique pictorial in right, a lot right. of ways. Which is why his he looks like he looks too, right? Like it's why he's wearing the Joel Schumacher nipple suit before he has there was a Joel suit before Joel Schumacher I mean before Joel Schumacher ever did a Batman with nipples on the suit Strife is walking around with and Strife's not just got nipples on the suit they are long pointy spikes yeah yeah or sometimes they light up right? Strife has the kind of nipples that you see on a 45 year old guy at the Eagle who loves a nipple clamp. yep yep that yep, yep. is the kind of nipples that are on this suit they are yeah. real they're like pencil erasers it's a whole thing those nipples have seen some wear and tear so and right. no disrespect no disrespect to those leather queens with the protruding nipples they have lived their lives yeah. in a way that they have enjoyed very much i'm sure so my point is just it's that right it is because the shadow self is queer yeah and always is and but i mean particularly and particularly the shadow self of a Rob Liefeld exactly hyper-masculine character. Say, right? Like, what is the thing you cannot ever say if, and I'm just using this as an example, but, like, if you're dealing with the machismo of, like, a Rob Liefeld drawing, the thing you must never acknowledge is how queer it is, is right. how much it is delighting in the male form. And so, I mean, the man is dressed as a giant mirror. Like, it is not a subtle, <laughs> it's no. not a subtle component no. of the fact that he is the 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 queer, the male. We talked about how Cable is hot. Like, Cable you is can so never hot. Think, you can never acknowledge it. And what if there was a character that forced you to? I do feel the need to say, much like Joe Mad, I have never been a huge fan of Chris Bocciolo because it's similarly, it's the cartoony style that is just not my preference. I like a more realistic style. Right, right. Chris Bocciolo draws the hottest cable <laughs> <He does. laughs> ever. If you read Mike Carey's run post-Decimation, yeah. which is the only Decimation era stuff I truly, truly love, Cable is on Rogue's team with Lady Mastermind and Omega Sentinel and all those fucking weirdos. And he is so sexy, it physically hurts to read. Because he sometimes. understands that the appeal is the mass, right? Like, he Yeah, <laughs> it's the bigness and also just like the square jawed. Like, I mean, the first time I thought Cable was hot because Liefeld Cable was not hot to me. It's when it was honestly, when does Marvel vs. Capcom 2 come out? Oh, yeah, yeah. I totally Cable's get... fucking hot in that yeah, game. Yeah, exactly. It's only when he starts wearing the old yellows and blues of the X-Men. When he starts wearing outfits that look like his dad's, yeah, exactly. honestly. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and that's not my favorite Cyclops outfit, but it's a great look on Cable. Yeah, I like that, that Cyclops sort of with Jim the little jacket. Style. A lot of people do. I don't like Cyclops with his hair out. I think it looks oh, weird. I like a Jim Lee hair. I like it. I like a head sock on a lot of characters. I, <laughs> I think Alex's 90s costume is great. Hot, yeah. I'm so hot. I was enjoying that in Executioner, so I was like, God, Alex and that Lorna Larry great. Stroman art is unbelievable. Larry Stroman, undefeated, yeah. just brilliant fucking. But the X-Factor stuff in here is Jay Lee. Oh, that's right. It switches right before. Doesn't he have, does Stroman have none of it? That's right. It's like I don't Barry, think he has right? any like of Jay the Executioners. Lee before he's Jay Lee, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, and what's interesting is you like kind of watch Jay Lee's style evolving over the course of the crossover. Which yeah. Is like, I guess they were in a rush, but. <laughs> Those final, it's the only time strife is scary is the the jay lee yeah. yeah well jay lee loves a like a, a silhouette with teeth a dracula yeah he loves like a dracula. Just, he just yeah. makes people draculas like <laughs> at one point bishop's a dracula We're like why is bishop a dracula here but it's because bishop is being scary in that moment so you're mm -hmm. like now i'm a dracula that's sort of just like what he does 
But he also draws like a very beautiful storm, a very beautiful Val mm-hmm. Cooper. Val Cooper has a great showing in Executioner's Song. I'm a Val Cooper head. She is, as I've said, like monstrous as a human being. Yeah, but I find and she her... kind of behaves monstrously a few times. In yeah, well, I just song. love the idea that she is... As I said last episode, like she is the special assistant to Ronald Reagan. Right. Is how she's introduced. And here comes the legacy virus, right? Like it's right. no accident. Yeah. And actually, she does handle the legacy virus pretty well, considering. Like, he, what's interesting about Val Cooper in the sliding time scale is that because she doesn't age, she's the special assistant to every president. Right. So right. <laughs> by this point, she's the special assistant to the Clinton administration. Yeah. Yeah. That's also, though, a very like, third way neoliberal thing the idea and this would absolutely have happened that bill clinton would have kept ronald reagan's mutant affairs liaison yes oh yeah absolutely because he's like well she's an independent she's really good she's got credentials you know because i don't think valerie cooper is like a republican but i do think that she's just she's a power she loves power she's a dino yeah she's exactly I mean, I'm dying to know what she's doing right now. It's nothing good, that's for sure. <laughs> I don't know, because I do think I do think over the course of Peter David writing her, she genuinely becomes, like, she'll always be condescending, but she genuinely becomes someone who wants to see the mutants do well. I think, I think she would take Krico as a massive betrayal. That's my question. And so if she did, if it's like, after all I did after for you... After all I did for you, you had to go and make Genosha too. Yeah, so I don't think... if she is one of the secret heads of Orcus? I would love to read it. I mean, we've seen some face turns. Let's have some heel turns. Let's- yeah, I said last week, like, giant size X-Men Valerie Cooper. I am available. <laughs> but so, the point is, she and Stevie are just kind of around in this. Right. I feel like this is the last story Stevie Hunter is, like, ever in, also. Doesn't no one knows she what to do with her like, right Claremont, after this? Yeah. Claremont understood what that character was for. Well, also, they got rid of the students. The X-Men don't have yeah, students anymore, exactly. so there's nothing for Stevie X-Force to do. X-Force is like a paramilitary. What's Stevie going to do? Yeah, yeah. right. Uh, to the point Jubilee where you have to is explain, the only person around. Sometimes have to explain to people who she is in that Jim Lee beach, the pool splash Right, scene. that's shot. Well, it's it's really funny because it's like Stevie Hunter and Opal Tanaka are there. Yeah, you always have to be like, who is... And you're like, who is, yeah. are these yeah. people? Right. <laughs> yeah, it's very... Like, it's a, such um, and I'm a like, weird well, snapshot. That's Opal Tanaka. She was dating Bobby. She's yeah. secretly a Yakuza princess. Yeah. Don't worry about it's like it. When you, and, it's uh, like when you bring your date to like your cousin's wedding and for the rest of your life... And you she's in the pictures forever. <laughs> right, yeah, exactly. It's that. And it's also Stevie is, in, Stevie is unrecognized there because she had cornrows or braids right. for the whole Claremont run and then suddenly as soon as Jim Lee takes over she just gets like a blowout right yeah so <laughs> when I first saw it I was like is that Charlotte Joe that's the other Maybe? thing yeah like Charlotte Charlotte has a, a brief moment Charlotte in the is in this too. yeah and asks Warren and asks Warren notably <laughs> she has the amazing line to Warren you're white <laughs> you're white and he's like <laughs> Yeah, which is great. Well, it's funny because you think maybe this is the first moment Charlotte realizes that she's dating a white man because he was blue, <laughs> so she didn't think about it. God. And now she's like, oh, you, you're, you oh, yeah, you're white. I right. forgot because you're blue, kind of, maybe. I don't know. It's a funny moment. This feels like it's Charlotte's last hurrah, too, though. I feel like yeah, she disappears she... shortly after this because right after this, Warren and Betsy start dating. Exactly, yeah. So she, I mean, she, she never had much of a chance, but... Well, the, she has the same Opal and Trish Tilby problem. Exactly. Of all being of the X Factor girlfriends. All of Louise Simonson's X Factor girlfriends as soon just as disappear she's, as pretty soon quickly. As Simonson's gone. That's it. Trish right? 
comes back a bunch until Morrison right, finally in, until in Morrison, Morrison finally writes her out in a, but but before that like she goes with them to Shear space in the late 90s she's a useful real... I mean she's such a useful plot device she takes over the Claremont thing of the um what's the NPR reporter's name Manoli Weatherall Manoli Weatherall <laughs> yeah. yeah she replaces Manoli Weatherall <laughs> which is a shame frankly because mm. I love a Manoli Weatherall moment those two should hook up I've read every appearance of Manoli Weatherall I believe because it. there aren't that many of them and one day it. I read every single one because I felt like it <laughs> this has nothing to do with the question anymore. this has nothing to do with the question um to go back <laughs> to your question about Strife who is out there listening to three hours about Strife oh honey this is gonna be four hours about Strife at this point and guess what Everyone's going to listen to it because, as I've said, your episode is the most popular uh, episode of this Iceman's podcast. <laughs> it's not Iceman's fault. It's that you have a very eager fan base. Oh, that's you just nice do. <laughs> you do. It's still the one that every day I'm just like, it ticks up. The ones that get like the first episode, obviously, because it's the first episode, is like neck and neck with yours. And also it's a creator interview with Teeny. So like those, mm. the creator interviews tend to do well. And then the Emma Frost episode People, I guess, recommend it to each other a lot because it's just like me and Alex like fagging out about Emma Frost for three hours, which is fun. Maybe Strife will crater nicely. You'll have a nice. (laughs) We'll have to see. Right. Yeah. I don't (laughs) know. The the episode, (laughs) the episode that people don't seem to listen to is the Toad episode with Tim Platt. And like, I understand because Toad sucks. However, it's a great episode and you should listen to it if you haven't. Uh, it's, It's one I was particularly pleased with, especially given that I went into it with no thoughts about Toad, like a smooth brain. And I was like, we're just gonna run with this and it's gonna be fun and it did turn out fun in any case yeah i think that on some level strife as evil cable is not that interesting beyond the original story once cable is secure in the fact that he is the real nathan quote unquote right the existential threat posed by strife becomes somewhat irrelevant right which is why I think it would have been more interesting if Strife was the real Nathan and Cable was the clone. I yeah, think that would have been a much more interesting story. That's to a tell. nice reversal of the Maddie thing, right? It's like, yeah, because then the one they care about would have been the clone. Yeah, and then and it it's becomes Maddie's like, child, and it's the clone that's the one they care. Like it would have been good. And as I said, like it. It, he he really shines when he's in dialogue with Cyclops and Gene, where it becomes yeah. like you gave because it's true you joined this weird paramilitary organization and you had a family and you threw it away because you thought there was something better around the corner and I am that thing in the way that Maddie right. can't be anymore right like right in because they've killed Maddie and then when she comes back in X-Man again I've done the explainer up through X-Man 52 it is the real Madeline however <laughs> however she's cloistered off in a story that doesn't have any impact on anybody else and they never really let her cross paths with Scott Anytime she comes back, it's going to be romantic, right? It's going to be about uh, a jilted lover. It's going to be about her resentment of Scott, or it's going to be about what she means to Alex as the only woman he ever really fully, like... Yeah. The thing about Alex and Lorna that's sad is that I love Alex and Lorna, and I I would like to see them make it work somehow, maybe someday. But the fact of the matter is he has so much more passion for Madeline in a much shorter period of time. That's the fun thing about rereading Executioner's Song is you see that in the background, right? Like Lorna is like very uncomfortable. She's still trying to negotiate what, because it's so early in the the X-Factor run. I had forgotten that Examinations is right after Executioner's Song. It's literally the, it's the... It's the issue right after. Every every one of the books, X-Force, X-Men does like a an unpacking of Executioner's Song. Yeah, a bottle episode, but Examinations, which is the most famous PAD... Justly so, yeah. Because it's great. Oh, it's great. 
but it is just wild that that's the that <laughs> right, that's the follow up. They're processing right? their strife drama. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and Alex actually has a really good showing in Executioner's Song. You know, as I said in the episode with Alison Senecal, I don't think he's a particularly good leader. And I think that that is his crisis is when you put him in a leadership role, he's not very good at it. However, he does a pretty good job here. He kind of kills Strife, too. Like, yeah, in like a great because he's the leftover, right? Like he gets through the force field because he's technically a Summers. He's a Summers and Strife (laughs) forgot about him, which is very funny. And then Alex fries him with a plasma blast. and He's like covered in like that's his uncle and he fried him alive. Yeah, it's but that is the thing with Madeline is that, yeah, when she comes back, it's usually about what she means to the men. Whereas Strife is like, you left a kid. There was a strife kid. is like I was a baby. I was a baby in Alaska and you walked away. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's a different thing. I would love to turn Maddie into a different thing someday, but that's yeah, well, beside we all, the point. <laughs> we all know. <laughs> Don't we all know that that's my <laughs> ultimate desire? Maybe we've got a maybe we've, maybe the strife hive will rise as, after this one. <laughs> maybe, maybe. I just think that that is well, I just I don't know. I would love to see them together, especially if Teen Cable is strife. Like I would kill to write him talking to Madeline. What you're getting at, I think, which I think is very much true, is that he's more interesting as Scott's failure than as Dark Cable. Right. Well, I mean, this speaks to, I mean, not to, I feel like I turn every podcast I'm on into therapy, but this is what's queer about him, right? Like the question, the question, why didn't you love me? Is a very queer right. question, yeah. right? Like, well, we were just talking about this on the Rachel episode because, like, the end of Gray's thing is like, well, and and also Jean rejecting her when she first appears. Yeah. It's very much a like, I don't want this gay daughter. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah. And not that I'm saying Jean is a homophobe, but it's like Rachel shows up and it's just like, mm, I don't think you're my child. Like, <laughs> exactly. I don't, I don't, I don't know how I feel about this. And I don't know? think it's an accident that Jean's final like acceptance she accepts rachel at the wedding yeah and literally right after the wedding she's thrown into the future to her honeymoon well that's immediately where we write rachel out and yeah. do the adventures of cyclops and, and the end yeah. of cyclops and phoenix is gene saying goodbye to rachel as she's dying yep saying like i wish i had been the mother i could have been to you god it's so good it honestly like again i'm glad we have rachel back but it is so stupid that they brought her back like not that many years later it really is so yeah in the same way that this is really an amazing finale to xavier especially because it is as much as you said off the top like it sucks that this starts with like the slugfest of mutant versus mutant like yeah but if he was actually dead if he was actually dead and the whole teams were fracturing and it became about like which of these ideologies and if like spinning out of this it was like yeah now cyclops and gene have to lead the school and yeah. havoc is and polaris are working for the government and cable and x-force because i don't think terrorists. there's been, i don't think that there's been as been many great. moments this really is the moment in X-Men history, mostly because it's so popular at this moment. Yeah. Where each of the teams is so completely ideologically at odds, right? Yeah, with one another. Absolutely. Like X-Factor is absolutely about like, let's just X-Factor conform. is assimilationist. It's the it's government. the government. Yeah. They become cops. They become, they become the freedom force, but real, right? Like- yeah, yeah. No, they, I mean, well, explicitly, Valerie Cooper says, well, freedom force didn't work. I need a new team. <laughs> 
you need a code name and you need to wear this uniform and all that. Yeah. X-Force is like, no, we, like, it again, like, responding to the Mutant Liberation Front. X-Force like, is explicitly rejecting the government and exactly. government oversight. And you have the X-Men as the weird heirs. Of Always that. trying to thread the Be the needle. middle way, whatever the middle but is. But with Xavier dead, it would be a lot <laughs> harder to justify the dream. Like, yeah. you know, because yeah. it, it, it exposes the naivete of it. It just would have been better. This is just the way I feel about a lot of characters. Imagine if you had kept Rachel dead after Adventures of Cyclops and Phoenix until she awakens on Krakoa. Yeah. What would we have? I said this about Colossus too. It's like, imagine that world for the character because it would be so powerful. The problem on some level is that they brought so many of the sainted martyr characters like Colossus and Rachel back in ways that weren't that interesting, that the resurrections on Krakoa are mostly characters we like, but who aren't that important. So it's like, oh yeah, (laughs) Taro and Katzai and Roulette are back. That's all I've ever wanted. But like, they're not, Rachel Pyotr and Ilyana and Jean are the characters where like the death matters. And all of those characters had come back from the dead before Krakoa. Right. So right. it's just like a little bit like the impact is slightly yeah. dull. Listen, I'm not complaining. I love I love all of it. I'm just saying like, can you imagine a world in which we could skip all of those bad Rachel Gray storylines and just jump? But then the problem from... is who the hell is this character? Right. Like, look at us. Like, we're talking about Strife. No one knows. Like, right. No, no, that is the problem. Right. It's like, you can't yeah. leave the IP dead. <laughs> No, you can't. I, and I fully get that. I'm just thinking of it from from a narrative perspective. It just would be so much more satisfying. Colossus is the really big one where I feel Colossus like... Colossus is hard. Colossus is a real puzzle. If you really had just left him dead from 2000 until Krakoa, that would have been the most yeah. momentous resurrection possible. It would have been so good. I kind of wish he had the arc that Rain is getting where it's like, can we just forget about the horrors yeah yeah Yeah, i mean the problem with yeah colossus is just a a mess so listen to the colossus episode (laughs) yeah he's a mess he's a mess listen to the colossus episode and the kate bright episode frankly if you want a full accounting of all of the mess of colossus and the cypher episode actually annalise and i get into that a little bit too zach rabaroff writes Hey, Zach. Hi, Connor Anthony. I needn't tell you how thrilled I am to have the two of you together again on this show, since it goes without saying that the team who brought us the unforgettable podcast on the many regrettable heterosexual romances of Bobby Drake (laughs) are sure to produce another all-time classic. But about Strife, he had, like Cyndi Lauper before him, one hell of a classic first album. Kidnapping his parents to the moon, reciting bad journal poetry until his mother falls unconscious, arm-wrestling his clone brother into the depths of oblivion, Sophocles, watching from the audience at the Athenian Dionysia, would have wept. But in the years since, while his schemes have been as murderously baroque as ever, he seems never to have quite recaptured that simple joie de vivre of a screaming edible teenage tantrum. So looking through the eyes of Strife rather than his writers, why do you suppose that is? Did he peak in high school, so to speak? Is he getting bored? Is he, God forbid, getting mellower? Cheers to both of you, and looking forward to Anthony's next comics work, Do You Hear Me, Marvel Editors, regards Zach Rabaroff. <laughs> I think part of it is what we articulated earlier, which is that once Strife knows he's the clone that really fucks him up bad. Mm. I think you that know? there's been moments, like there's there's an arc where he keeps calling Nathan his rough copy, which I think is great. <laughs> um, <laughs> right, it's like, I'm the perfected version. Yeah, right? exactly. Yeah. And I like that as a philosophy. I think that part of it is the strange alchemy of Fabian Nicieza steering the ship. Like 
once you recognize that Nicieza's voice is always that Baroque and always that good at overhearing itself, it's hard to miss. I, I yeah, I, I grew up for a lot because he is very much a workman, like by his own admission, like. Claremont won't do it, I'll do it, right? Like, right. But once you recognize that's his style and like the way it expresses itself in this over-the-topness, that's something that just by the nature of who buys cable comics is a risky voice to mimic. Yeah, because cable comics are sort of geared typically toward a very bro-y audience. Yeah. They're trying to get that Liefeld-type market. Exactly. And that's why you don't see that much of Strife, honestly, because Strife is not he's a faggot in a cape like (laughs) yeah like it's just a very different vibe the minute strife shows up it's just like gonna get faggoty up in here exactly he's in an opera cape like he's the phantom of the opera truly i mean yeah you have to write him you have to write you need a gay voice to write that character like you need to understand that voice you need to understand like the answer to zach's question is in it like it is operatic. It is Sophocles. And if you're just shooting guns at each other, you're not getting to the heart. You need the stage work that is the final shot of Executioner's Song where he's like, he's built a plinth and he's going to show you all your sins on that plinth, right? Like, it is Sophocles. And if you're not hitting that register, he just kind of fizzles. He works sometimes. I was a little annoyed, actually, in Messiah War that, like, the visuals are there. Like, he's got this ma- amazing Baroque throne. Yeah. The art is really f- giving you life. But if it's just running and gunning, it's not going to hit. He's in the wrong story. Right. And you need, like, it's funny because it's not it's not actually a gay voice because it's the CISIS, But it, you need someone <laughs> who gets it. Like, you need... Yeah. Like, Claremont knows queer people. Exactly. And you can tell. I don't, again, I've said, like, I don't know anything about Chris Claremont's personal life. As far as I know, he's only ever had relationships with women or whatever. He's, he doesn't really talk about his personal life. But he clearly knew gay people. Right. He clearly was friends with gay people. All of his stuff about gay people or bisexual people or whatever nightlife, all of the stuff he infuses into that run feels very authentic. Right. And Nascenti knows gay people. And Nascenti would write the hell out of Strife. Right. <laughs> and Fabian Niciesa knows gay people. That's why he wanted to push the HIV storyline. That's why he wanted to do the Richter and Shatterstar thing, although his conception of it was different from how it turned out. But he wanted to explore these things because he thought they were important. It's here in Executioner's Song, right? Like that, the Richter and Shatterstar stuff is already here. Well, the fact that Richter attacks Rain to protect Shatterstar yeah, is that's very... a major decision, right? Like that, yeah. Rain was his love interest until that yep. moment. Yeah. I mean, it goes to what you were saying about Disney villains. You have to write a Disney villain. Even with the elemental concerns of a Disney villain, where it's like, it's about childhood abandonment, right? Right. And what I would say is, Jerry Duggan knows gay people, and Zeb Wells knows gay people. (laughs) And that's why those characters... I mean, and like, Kieran Gillen reshaped Sinister the way he did. Kieran Gillen's a queer guy, right? Like, it's not a shocker that he could do that. But... The way Zeb Wells writes Sinister now, I'm just like, this man gets it. You know, like, he gets it. And I think Jerry Duggan similarly gets it, which is, I think, I mean, I'm not a Deadpool person, so I haven't read most of Jerry's work on Deadpool, which ran for, like, a billion years. (laughs) But Deadpool is a character you need to be able to write queerly with, right? Right. Like, that is sort of his whole, and it's often played for laughs, or has been, historically. I mean, it's not an accident that 
Strife and Deadpool have a lot of stories together. <laughs> right. Or that, yeah, exactly. Or that, like, when Niciesa came up with, like, kind of a love interest for Deadpool, it was Cable. Right. I mean, it's all that kind of thing. So that's the problem, really, is that I think Strife got put in a bunch of stories that were too hetero in their framework for yeah. him to thrive. Like, yeah. you need someone who's willing to embrace the camp, even if the author is straight. You need to put him in a story where that costume makes sense, right? Yes. Like, <laughs> that's yes. the thing. And that's <laughs> also the thing with Mr. Sinister. It's like, Mr. Sinister only works if he is in a story where that guy wearing that outfit makes a lick of sense. Like, right. that's, yeah. you know? <laughs> that's why making Mr. Sinister this really camp figure, it saved the character. Because the hyper-serious Sinister of the 90s is deathly dull. Yeah. You just, there's nothing there that's particularly interesting because why is he wearing that? Like, it doesn't make sense. Yeah, it's why you get the Weapon X thing where suddenly he's like in a business suit for a lot of it. Right, <laughs> yeah. and you're just like, nah. <laughs> Justin Dumond writes, Dear Connor and Anthony, thank you, Connor, for the wonderful podcast, and thank you, Anthony, for sharing your insights this week. As much as I want to think about the implications of Strife as a foil or shadow self of Cable, or as a dark prophecy of a world in which Apocalypse or Rob Liefeld are left to their own devices, <laughs> all I can really think about when I see Strife on the page are the armor nipples. Have they ever served a purpose in story? Do they focus the totality of his psychic powers? Are Strife's nipples particularly sensitive and thus need additional protection? Are they magnets? Also, are there other male X-Men characters whose outfits would be improved by armor nipples? Thanks, Justin. Such a good question. Such Great a good question. Great question. I think that Colossus should have hard nipples at all times, visible <laughs> they, they through have his a razor point. <laughs> he can yeah, just like... <laughs> because they're literally, they've been turned to organic steel. They should be perky and erect they would be his opinion. only there they'd be a sharp point on his body which yeah he, you could just, he could kind of just have. like yeah. hit like you with his titty and just yeah. like you know it would be does he have armored nipples when he changes have we seen a canonical he should he should, should but does he i i mean when he's i mean we just see him like armored up yeah, never, I, I don't think we've ever focused look. in on I would take a look. whether <laughs> they they become erect and hard as steel. Um, but I would like to think so. Um, Shatterstar would look great with a yep. uh, a nipple spike. Yep. Yeah, that'd be very in keeping. Exodus, I think, could do with Absolutely. some nipple spikes. <laughs> Although he has like a softness to his look. That's that I... true. Exodus is a little bit like he's got that cult leader look. That like yeah, it's a little bit flowy. like baron harkonnen kind of gay but yeah hot. yeah you know yeah. like hedonism bot is kind of like an exodus <laughs> right, yeah. vibe he's the opposite and like strife is one response to being like an omega level telepath and exodus is the other one where it's just like i'm just gonna wear terry cloth all the time yeah right it's like yeah exactly um like his only sharp thing is that weird it basically looks like he's a gothic cathedral right like to answer your like actual question, there's never been a moment where Strife like shoots psychic laser beams out of his no. tits or anything. Although there should be. I mean, that's like sure. the fact that it yeah. hasn't happened is frankly a travesty. But as far as I know, they are decorative and have not served a utilitarian purpose. What's kind of amazing is most of his costume is right. Like he's right. It's not an Iron Man suit. It has no functionality near. No, like, it's actually <laughs> to go back to Song of Ice and Fire. It's an Iron Throne, right? Like it's yes. made of blade. It's not functional, and he would hurt himself if he wasn't really careful walking around in right. it. Like it, it, it's entirely decorative. It is a semiotic statement. Yeah, yeah, and it's in his first splash page where he's greeting his parents in Executioner's <laughs> song, and he's like, "I am strife." 
scion of mutant kind, the crown prince, the chaos bringer. Like you're just like, yeah, he's it's royal. Right. It's a crown. It is a crown. Yeah. It's like a queen wearing something not functional and being carried around on a litter. Like it's like that mm-hmm. part of being royalty is not wearing something practical because you don't have to work for a living (laughs) right yeah (laughs) you know like that's sort of part of the whole deal and i think that that's what it is are there more costume questions yes oh okay yeah because i have other things about his costume yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) so Xavier Golden writes, hey, Connor and guests, when I saw the next episode was about strife, I knew I had to write and ask a question about my favorite knife-covered clone. Has there (laughs) ever been an explanation for why he wears that costume? Does it help him control his powers, or does he use the many knives on his body in combat? Is it to protect him from emotional and or physical intimacy? I feel like a lot of his problems would be resolved if somebody just gave him a hug. Best, Zavi. Then, relatedly, (laughs) Andrew Kosick writes, is Strife wearing thigh highs? Because he's wearing boots that end above the knees. But there's an entire separate layer of 90s-style metal armor under there. Also, does he technically have thigh epaulets? Are epaulets just for shoulders? How much of the Krakoan language is just dedicated to describing elaborate capes and armor choices? What's the mutant word for nipple spikes? So those questions kind of pair well together. Yeah. Well, we kind of talked about one dimension of it, which is that he is wearing the descendant of the hound costume through the Ascani culture costume, yes. right? Like he is wearing what Madame Sanctity, because he doesn't wear those spikes until after he meets Madame Sanctity. Right, who's got the whole hound uniform yeah. with the spikes on it. Which is Rachel, so like there's a real continuum there. The other thing though is like, yeah, he's got the, there's a great moment in uh, Brisson's um, X-Force run where he's in transia, like young Strife is in transia, and he's wearing like a, a more tactical version of the strife costume there's less spikes it's not that spiky yet yeah and the right. guy touches his shoulder the the president touches his shoulder and there's just a panel just looking at the hand on his shoulder and you can tell he's like you can I tell that he's sp- like i need more spikes <laughs> there need, right yeah. now so that no one can touch me <laughs> i do think that it is about not being touched i think that that is important yeah. especially after the experience of his father apocalypse the only person he trusted embracing him with intent to kill him exactly so i think that he refuses to be touched unless it's on his terms which is not unlike in my personal interpretation why rachel starts wearing her own version of the hound yep. costume yep it's like you don't get to touch me i unless decide i when want you, you to me. touch yeah, me yeah, right exactly. it's like classic hedgehog's dilemma right like yeah exactly. he wants he wants nothing more than to be hugged but you can't, it's actually... Oh, no. Is Strife the Shinji Ikari of <laughs> Oh, X-Men? he absolutely is. Like, Oof. I talked about Hamlet. He's absolutely that, right? Yeah. Like, my dad is shit. Don't touch me. Like, he has a lot in common <laughs> with another 90s villain, which is Shredder, right? Where it's like, I need you not to touch me. <laughs> I was thinking when you were talking about um, Rachel's Hound, her Hellfire Gala look and the collar and the... The leash, like the muzzle, and stuff, there's a lot yeah. of like noli me tangere, right? Like mm-hmm. the like Caesar's I am, like diamond studded necklace, like I am set apart for great purpose and not to be handled. And there is right. something about that going on with him too. It's also Emma's whole deal, right? Like, yes, yeah. You know, Emma does it in a different way because Emma does it via nudity. It's a dare. It's like I dare you to touch me because I'll fucking kill you. Yeah. It's two approaches to not wanting to be touched. Emma is just sort of like, you know, I am an untouchable diamond. And if you dare, yeah, dare to lay a finger on me, I will melt your brain into pudding. The other approach is 
if you touch me, you will bleed. Right. And it's weird. You know? It's weird that I can't think of a single moment he has used them tactically. No. Like, there's never been a moment where he, he stabbed. There's a great moment before Executioner's Song where X-Factor is fighting the MLF and Zero opens a portal and uh, Rain reaches through the portal and grabs Strife mm -hmm. and they're pulling him between the two and Rain pulls off one of his gloves and it's like yeah. a key piece of evidence for the rest of Executioner's yeah. song. And in the next panel, Strife is pulling on another glove. Like, yeah, because he has one handy. Right. <laughs> immediately. And no, Wildfire no, no, is like, sir. where did you get that glove? <laughs> like, do you buy them in bulk? <laughs> oh, no, ma'am. You cannot disrobe me. I don't allow yeah. that. I love also to, to the boots and the thigh highs. I love that they're actually... If you look at Sinister, exact same situation. It's the thigh same, yeah. With a second boot at the bottom, an ankle yeah. boot and then a thigh high. Yeah. I also <laughs> like that, as far as I can really recall, Strife only really takes his mask off for two reasons. And one is to trick people into thinking he's Cable. Yep. And the other is when he's with Cable and like that's when it's in As a wig reveal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. It's like dun 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 yeah. dun. Sometimes like, it has a I sound am. effect. It has like a hunk shum. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's always a serve. Like he's it's definitely, done. you know, it's a reveal. It's a, it's a, I mean, a it is, an, kid. it is the <laughs> ultimate reveal in Blood and Metal when he first does it, when he's just like, uh, oh, guess what? I'm you, bitch. Yeah. Oh, you thought you thought I was just a bad guy, but I'm you, Nathan. It's like Surprise! what if what if you were on the Drag Race stage and you revealed you were RuPaul? Right. Like, oh, I'm sorry, Ru. Did you not realize that I am your clone from the future, or that yeah. you're actually the clone of me? Yeah. Where does one of us end and the other begin? <laughs> Who can say but our creator? Yeah, or like when Lady Gaga pretended to be Lady Gaga impersonator, like that. Yeah, or Adele did that once on that prank show. The, you know, it's yeah. just that. It's that kind of thing. Like, you know, it's just sort of like, surprise, bitch, I'm you. Yeah. There's a great, it's it's truly like high drama. Like that is, that yeah. is camp. That's that is great. camp. If He's like, here I am, my eyes glowing just like yours. Like, you yeah. know. <laughs> let's measure everything i'll show you you know yes, it's that that's, kind that's of the we'll get to that next step yeah we'll get to that because <laughs> the biggest thing about strife is that he wants to fuck cable and we haven't quite gotten to that but we're gonna get there cable has everything he wants like that's yeah. what he wants yeah. like yeah mm -hmm. that's again classic i mean everything is edible here so <laughs> levi tompkins writes so how do you think Strife recruited the Mutant Liberation Front? I mean, I'm sure dudes like Reaper and Wildside were just down to clown, but how did somebody who looks and talks like Strife recruit intelligence-seeming radicals like Tempo or Thumbelina? I have wondered this myself. I love Thumbelina, by the way. Thumbelina's hilarious. Great character. I love all of the MLF, frankly. Like, I yeah. think they're great. I would love... We saw, like, Strobe and Forearm and Wildside on Krakoa, like, briefly. I would just love to see all those weirdos pop up more. <laughs> There's a real, like... Because they do believe in, like, the radical... Like, Strife yes. doesn't, but they do. So it would be interesting to see them without his leadership doing stuff, really. I mean, like, without him or Rainfire, which was, like, not right. much of an improvement. <laughs> oh, that's right. They work for him after, yeah. Uh-huh. Ed Brisson's run plays with this, right? Like, obviously yeah. this is a retcon, right? Like, the idea is supposed to be that he is just Magneto 2, right? Like, that's his initial 
concept. He's like another high powered mutant who's running a gang like this. When Stripe is introduced, yeah, yeah. like none yeah. of this is none of this is established until later. And the fact that he's doing it cynically is only comes around. The fact that he doesn't really believe any of it is a retcon. <laughs> but Ed plays with this in the recent X-Force run where he does the exact same trick where he recruits all these transient mutants and is like, those transients are oppressing you. It's time for us to do something. And he cynically blows up their own transport to recruit them to do it. Like, he's charismatic. That is the whole, I mean, it helps that he's right. an Omega-level telepath, which is the easier answer. He literally brainwashes Rusty and Skids. He's not anymore, which okay. is interesting. All no, right. but it's interesting. I, <laughs> this is something that bothered, like, I was talking about this in the Rachel episode. I completely, completely understand the desire to cut down on the Omega-level mutants. However, given all of the Ascani Sun stuff, I just find it outrageous that Cable and Rachel are not Omegas if Quentin Choir is. I'm sorry. It's just I mean, goofy. The whole point of Sinister is that this kid is going to be the big Is deal. the most powerful mutant. So and Rachel is be. an alternate <laughs> world version of that. Like, it has to be. They should be yeah. stronger than Gene. They just should. Yeah. Every by time, their nature. Every time Scott and Gene hook up, it should be like a dangerous event. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. So that's my... That's my just my complaint on that again but but so he, it helps that he's a telepath we know he literally brainwashes rusty and skids so that's one yeah. answer but i do think he is just naturally charismatic he's good at he was raised by a despot <laughs> like, right <laughs> also there's a reason why like the only one who really questions him is tempo and that's mm. because tempo is the most sort of level-headed of the group yeah. most of these people are just angry people you look yeah. at someone like dragoness you look at someone like wild side like these are just people who are angry and who are looking for a reason to strike out yeah reaper wants to kill people like you yeah, know yeah yeah I and mean, so yeah. <laughs> like that's the thing is it's like they do believe in this cause, but he also finds people who are ready and willing to become violent terrorists, right? I mean, one of them is named Kamikaze, right? Like, yeah, is... Well, let's not talk about that. <laughs> he is convincing. And so if you're someone who is looking for a cult leader, yep. he's he, that he's, guy. He's from a cult. Like... Yeah, and Thumbelina is not smart. I mean, that's the answer right. with Thumbelina. And like, Slab. Th yeah. Thumbelina and Slab are not that smart. <laughs> That's just like their, that's their problem, unfortunately. Right. There does seem to be so, a paycheck too, like unusually. Yeah, oh, they're I'm sure like, they're getting paid, right? Yeah. yeah, no, you know, so. Listen, you destroy enough government installations, you've got stuff to fend. He spends like 10 years building like an empire on Earth in the present yep. for some reason. Mm -hmm. Like, again, as a wreck, mostly because they need him to be fighting Cable in the present day. But yes, he's got funding. <laughs> he's got cash. 10,000 mm -hmm. francs a month from the, the opera house. <laughs> <laughs> the next question I'm just going to read because I think it's funny. We've sort of answered it already. But Michael Hall writes, Hi, Connor and Anthony. Do you ever see a path to redemption for Strife? And if so, do you think you'd be better off hanging out with Corsair for a bit rather than Scott and Jean? Also, would you like to see a de-aged version of Strife similar to what they did with Cable? Hope you're both keeping well. Love both your work. So I think that that's exactly what they're doing. And you can read about it in the pages yeah. of Jerry Duggan's cable because i think that's what that book's about <laughs> i could be wrong again we're doing this episode before it ends and then i'll do the cable episode after it ends because frankly i need to know whether teen cable needs to be in the cover art for the cable episode right <laughs> if he's strife he doesn't belong there i do think he would hate corsair yeah i don't think he would like corsair, corsair at all <laughs> at all it would be like having to play football with your like 
it would be like me playing football with my dad actually is what it would be like it would be awful he would hate Corsair he would love Hepzibah though he would well who doesn't love Hepzibah but the problem with Corsair if you're like the gay child yeah is that Corsair is so straight right I mean, he also abandoned a bunch of children. Stripe would well, have a there's problem that. Like, I was going to say, Stripe, now, to be fair, he thought they were dead. On the other hand, Stripe doesn't really care about explanations. <laughs> right. He's just not that, you know? I just think that Corsair's, like, macho space pirate 70s Lothario thing would make Strife want to commit murder. Yeah. Like, it would be fully not good for He them. would, though, he would come out with the best outfit and Corsair would not care and that would be kind of the end. And then he would team up with Deathbird immediately. Yeah, and then he and Deathbird would hook up and they would conquer the Shi'ar Empire, much like yeah. Vulcan did. It would be like sort of that, it'd be sort of that vibe. He would have like a purple version of his normal costume. Rachel gets on with Corsair because the lesbian daughter is yeah. a very, le- oh. the lesbian Lesbian yeah. granddaughter is a very different. Those vibe. two would get on like a house on fire. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. So that makes perfect sense. This is the final question, and then we'll just like have fun for however long we want to. Sure. Kayla Boren writes, "Hi Connor and Anthony. Not to flex, but as a 1994 baby, I have little to no frame of reference for who wow. Strife is or what his deal is. So I'm excited to learn all about him." My only question is an extremely serious and important one. The same question I have about all clone rivalries. Would it be considered incest if Cable and Strife kissed? Do you think they should kiss? Thank you as always, Caleb. P.S. I may not know much about this guy, but seeing his impeccable taste in fashion has convinced me that the Quiet Council voted against resurrecting clones specifically to prevent Strife from stunting on them at the Hellfire Gala. He absolutely would. Matt Thielson also <laughs> asked what Strife would wear to the Hellfire Gala, so we'll get to that. But first, let's tackle the big twincestuous elephant in the room, which is... <laughs> How bad Strife wants to fuck Cable. Yeah. It is the not-so-subtle subtext of every scene they appear in together, ever. Right. And I think they should kiss. I'm sorry. I'm just going to be controversial. (laughs) I think, like, is it incest? Technically, I suppose it is. Should they bang it out? I kind of feel like they should. (laughs) They're both into it. They're clones. Whatever. Who knows? This is... If multiple man can fuck his duplicates, which I assure you he does. I think that's canon, actually. I think it's that... not, but we all know it is. <laughs> is it not? I, okay. It's canon that one of the dupes is gay, and I'm just like, that dupe is a, like a lazy Susan at dupe house. <laughs> no. That dupe is the kitty in the middle of any Madrox <laughs> gathering, any gathering of the Madri. I forgot that it's pluralized Madri, that's right. Only in Age of Apocalypse, right. but I always yeah. liked it. <laughs> the fact of the matter is... Cable and Strife have electric sexual chemistry. There is that scene in Blood and Metal where... Oh my god, I posted this. Strife is like, you will taste blood, Cable! And Cable is like, the only way I'll taste blood is from kissing you goodbye. (laughs) If one of them was a woman, that would be like the most Batman-Catwoman rivalry, villain, hero, romance line of all time. But they just happen to be identical twins who are men. So no one sees it that way, but it's there. It's just there. I'm sorry. Yeah. I mean, this is one of the oldest plots in sci-fi, right? Like, I immediately flashed to Kira Norris flirting with Kira on Deep Space Nine, right? Like, right. when the evil twin shows up, they sexually menace It's Willow you. and evil Willow. Oh my god, absolutely. I mean, it happens all the time. It's just like a very common 
trope. And like, I don't, we don't have a word for what it is. <laughs> like, no, incest isn't right. And it is narcissism is what it is. Like, yeah. That's but where it's you go. Also, like, it's also particularly with strife and cable because of this sense that they're two parts of a whole. Right. It very much has this feeling of like, we should have sex and complete ourselves. Yeah, right. Because they literally are missing what the other needs, right? Yeah, and like what the other has. And like, they also like, they didn't grow up together. They don't see each other really (laughs) as family. It's like, I don't know. I'm not saying it would be normal, but I'm just saying (laughs) I'm going to get a terrible reputation after I defended Kurt and Amanda on the Nightcrawler episode. I'm just going to be like, people will be like, "Mm, he's the guy who thinks incest is cool. I don't think incest (laughs) is cool. I don't. But I do feel like Cable and Strife, it's complicated. I mean, as I said, like, it's literally, it is one of sci-fi's oldest tropes. It's Michael Fassbender making out with Michael Fassbender in that one alien movie. Like, it's a thing. It is just a thing. And that goes back, I mean, the the Prometheus goes back to, like, I keep thinking about Narcissus because of Oscar Wilde. Like, there is something about decadent culture that is thinking about the double with which I could have some kind of sexual relationship. Yeah. Yeah. It is also just part and parcel of like homoeroticism in art, right? It's like the borderline between homoeroticism and narcissism yeah. is something that a lot of particularly straight writers tend to play with, honestly. Yeah. Oh, but yeah. you also see it. I mean, like Bruce LeBruce's new movie is all about that. It's called San Narcisse. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> I, you know, I just think that there's... They constantly have their faces super close to each other. Yeah. It's just they're always, they always literally look like they're about to kiss. Yeah. That's the yeah. thing. It's in a way, it's a weird version of the saber tooth Wolverine thing too, right? Like they're doubles of each other. Yeah. In a weird way. Like that energy will always rise to the surface. Mm-hmm. And like you get that also with. I mean, you already mentioned the faith in Buffy thing, right? Yeah. Like, I mean, like that's it's it's it is that. And if you look at all kinds of stories where a character gets an explicit darker half who's manifested as a character, you're just gonna run into that. Yeah. Because there's an erotic charge to that. Like there just always is. That is why I absolutely do think they should kiss. I just do. It will never happen. This is like of all the oh things my that are ne- yeah. of all the things that are never going Whoever to happen. Whoever wrote it would go to jail. Yeah, no, like truly, like Disney would send them to the hole beneath Krakoa. Yeah. It would, it would never. Like you would be in like the pit in the house of mouse. Like I mean, also the story is done if it happened, right? Like the whole emotional. Right, that would resolve their whole thing. Like literally, (laughs) if like this is well, the thing that's fascinating on some level when you think about it is that like strife is also like cable as a bottom. Right. Yep. Yeah. Like they are made for each other in that sense, right? (laughs) Like they're very sexually compatible because strife is like the ultimate bitchy bossy bottom in a cape like it is that thing i mean we're reaching into other popular culture but actually it's the same energy that madeline and gene have when they resolve right especially in those final issues of inferno where they're clasping hands and all of that like there is a sexual charge because really it's about it is about the wholeness of oneself right that is actually their their emotional problem is they feel like one being who has had to have two lives. Right. One of them got to be whole, like, again, in quotes, but raised by a monster. Yeah. But one of them got to have the family, but had to deal with all this, like, 
illness and disability. One of them is the like quote unquote broken one right. because of the techno organic virus. But and one is the, the one who has the loving family. Kind. One yeah. is the beautiful <laughs> crown prince of mutant kind, except that he was raised by an evil dictator and has never <laughs> known love. Right. So that's the you know. So like really, yes, they absolutely should just <laughs> like. Spice Girls hyphen to become one dot MP3. But I just don't think it's going to happen because like if we can't see Scott and Gene and Logan in bed together still. Right. Then we are never going to see Strife throw his legs back up over his head for cable. We're just not going to see it. It's There's never going to happen. spikes in the way anyway. I know. You'd have to despite. He'd be like, he'd be like, yes. Like, you know, it would be very Sleeping Beauty, like cutting through the. Right. The, the brambles to get to the castle. It's like Cable just like, oh, these spikes. But no, to, to be clear, most of the time, I would not say the two characters who are technically brothers should have sex. Cable and Stripe are an exception because they absolutely are thematically presented as two halves of a whole. And they constantly want to fuck each other in every scene they've ever appeared in together. So it's just I'm not I'm sorry. I didn't write it. It's just right. what it is. It is what it is. Right. As for what Strife should wear to the Hellfire Gala, I would love if he wore Maddie's outfit. Oh, like with the with the like with under the under boob. with the underboob <laughs> and like the gold brooch. I think that would be really that, funny. I'm not gonna be but able like, to top that. But like with a black that. version of a Strife helmet, like oh. it would be the helmet, but in like that black navy kind of color that the rest of the Maddie outfit is. Oh, I'm not gonna be able to top that one. That's exactly what he should wear. Is- and if anyone's <laughs> listening who would like to draw that for me, I would love that for me. That would be a good way for Kid Cable to come out. Like, <laughs> Yeah, Kid Cable just shows up at the Hellfire Gala in Madeline's outfit yeah. and a Strife helmet and they're all that matches. And they're all just like, so son, do you have something to tell us? Or? That's untoppable. Yeah, I can't beat that. Untoppable, eh? <laughs> Unlike Strife. Much like Strife in that armor. <laughs> So that's my thought on that. Do you have anything else you want to say about Strife before we do some dramatic readings from the Strife Strike File, which uh, I think would be fun? No, thank you for indulging me. I hope I've made a case for why this character rules. Um, even if you've, if you've never heard of him and you're like, oh, that's interesting. I'm very happy for that. If you're like, why, why have you done this to us? I understand. Um, but I just, you know, part of it is like, you love the pop culture you love at the moment you start absorbing it, you know, like I also love He-Man. Would I would I make a case for why He-Man is the greatest text ever made? Maybe not. But I will never forget <laughs> you showing me when I visited you up in Toronto, you showing me He-Man dubbed into in Azorian Portuguese. Portuguese. Not just Portuguese, <laughs> but like weird Azorian Portuguese. Right. That was a real moment (laughs) yeah i i just i think you love the thing you love and that's the joy of pop culture is like pulp kind of has digested so much of things before it gets to you like like i said like there's so many strains of like hamlet and whatever in this so i get it if if you've all like been (laughs) like what the fuck but i love i think they're having fun they had to wait three hours to get to the incest (laughs) question so i think that they're uh you know uh but yeah, anyway, I love him. I hope he shows up again. I would love to write him, but we'll see. Here's what he writes about Ascani, the Ascani who who brought this is him the strife from the future as a baby. This is a strife strike file. 
Ascani, daughter to the pain and torture of the tomorrow killer, mother and sucker to the day spring, son of the morning fire. So little have I learned about you, Ascani. To me, you were nothing more than a cause for minor distraction, a clan leader of some distinction, certainly with a stoked fire in your belly, but barely worth my attentions. Had I known then what I know now about your actions, I believe I would have taken the time to get to know you better, to wring your neck in my clenched hands. In many ways, Ascani, you are the reason I am even alive and the reason I am really dead. So do I love you or hate you? Do I nurse at your breast or do I tear at your throat? Do I look for you if I survive the final chorus of my mad song? Upon finding you, do I gaze into your eyes and slay you cold, leave you for dead? Or do I ask for the answers to the questions which have torn at me since birth? Who am I really? Why am I here? What did I do to deserve this life? Could you give me these answers, Ascani? Would you? <laughs> I will never be whole until I know. That is where you have left me, my time-worn midwife. On the edge, unable to tread upon either side for fear of falling off the precipice, yet ravaged inside for lack of knowing which way to go. Thank you, Ascani. May you one day pay for what you have done in the name of Xavier's dream. May you burn for providing that hope to others while forever denying it to me. Wow. These are just the best. <laughs> that the rules. Best. <laughs> that fucking rules. Like, see what I mean? Like, pure Nicieza, but also like, what a drama queen. <laughs> what a fucking bitch he is. <laughs> I love it so much. Uh, can I do the Apocalypse one? Which is Yeah, the first. I was going to say, find one that you want to read. This was So the Apocalypse card was the one that came in X-Force 16. So, like I said, they were polybagged together. And this was the first encounter i had with this kind of prose <laughs> um okay <clears throat> it will be a river of blood which spills between us master of the forever past and it will be your ancient congealed dry caked ichor which will splatter the landscape like dry heat washing me down in its dusty tears of time when you fall apocalypse when your withered hand reaches out for mercy when the master of the forever past asks for help that is when the circle between us will be complete. When you will be as helpless before me as I once was before you. And you will be given in return what you gave in kind. Nothing but scorn. It is, as you are so fond of always pointing out, survival of the fittest. Let's see which one of us survives. That's great. <laughs> That's some good fucking shit. <laughs> that's the best <laughs> no one talks like that in marvel anymore i want it no. back no it's so good i'm gonna read havoc and polaris right now <laughs> or actually it says polaris and havoc love that for her coming first well he would he would <laughs> guilt by association that has always been their clarion call never willing to fully participate in the games of the atom they have nonetheless been dragged kicking and screaming into the nuclear fires time and again they are but the second originators of the mutant salvation they watch the primaries in acknowledged admiration and muted jealousy does havoc hate cyclops i wonder let their wills be forged in the stoking flames of armageddon then we will see what brotherhood is made of in more ways than one. <laughs> Strife thinks that he and Cable should fuck. I'm sorry. That's what mm. that's about. That's just what that's about. There's a whole thing for Holocaust. Oh, that's the other thing is the strike file. The strike file has characters in it who, because he's from the future. Right. He knows about characters who hadn't been invented yet. Right. So he knows about Holocaust. He knows about Threnody before they ever appeared in the comics. So you'd pick yeah. it up and be like, who the fuck is this? Is there a Threnody file? Yeah, there's a Threnody file in the mix. I don't seem to have that here. 
My hardcover seems to have reprinted a couple pages. Oh, it's weird. very. There's 33 of these in the original. Yeah, I feel. Like I'm looking at the Moira McTaggart one, <laughs> which is wild. Yeah, this one unfortunately seems to have double printed a bunch of. Them, There's a Fabian Cortez. There's his about himself. Do you want this one? Should I bring I mean, it home with this? I mean, obviously, yes. Okay. Uh, listen to how sad it is. The final move, white king against black king. Yet here nothing but gray remains reigns supreme. Shades of gray of uncertainty, insecurity, confusion, anger, love, and hate. Shades of me, shades of you, shades of them. Let the final moves be made. Let time determine the righteousness of my path. I did it for only two reasons. I did it because I hate you all. And I did it, ultimately, because I hate myself. Tomorrow I will know if I was right or wrong. What? <laughs> what? Here's the one for Cable. <laughs> Play the game with me one last time, mirror friend. Run through time with me in a race against the repetition of sins we've endured and caused over and over again. See my reflection, mirror foe. Look at your face staring at you with scars carved in pain and hopelessness. Sneer as the glint of metal catches your eye and ask yourself, what are you fighting for? Humanity? Mutants? Tomorrow? Today? All illusions, as you of all people know. There is only hatred to fuel us, hatred to consume us, hatred to engulf us. Walk in the fire with me, Nathan. Let us burn together. What? What? <laughs> That's so hot. Firewalk with me. Firewalk with me. That's insane. Yeah. That's insane. That's fully insane. Well, I hope well, we've made the case. Yeah. So. <laughs> I can't believe we did three hours on strife. I can. <laughs> We're at three and a half right now. I mean, I'm going to have to edit it down a little bit. People are going to be like, release the Anthony Oliveira cut. <laughs> I had a lot of fun talking about strife oh it's always a joy to be on here thank you for oh having me. well thank you for coming i'm sure we'll have you back we ice the royal we what am i strife <laughs> the, the strife crown we. prince of yeah. mutant kind <laughs> chaos bringer i'm sure that i will have you back soon enough i actually think it would be fun to do apocalypse so maybe we'll do that that's a lot of research but i think i'm up for it, I think I'm, I'm, up for it. I'm booked through july so maybe we do that I've in august you know okay. what i mean right. right yeah okay yeah Apocalypse is right in my pocket because, like, I as I said last time, like, I picked up where you left off. So Right, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Whereas, like, a lot of those stories I read much later because I had decided to just hide in the Claremont and Simonson world <laughs> right. and never right. just, like, not come out. Well, why don't you tell listeners where they can follow you online if they don't already and plug anything and everything that you want to plug? You can follow me online at Mia Koopa, M-E-A-K-O-O-P-A on most things, mostly Twitter. Upcoming, we've got the Pride issue of Marvel Voices. I'm writing the Iceman story for that, which is a lot of fun. Uh, what else can I announce? Probably nothing yet. Yeah, that'll that's that's it right now. You also have a novel that you just were... I just finished writing it, yeah. Called Dayspring. I wonder where you got that title from. (laughs) (laughs) We didn't even talk about that. That Dayspring as a title for Cable is actually a very obvious Christian reference. In fact, one of the problems we'll have selling the novel is that Dayspring.com is owned by the Christian division of Hallmark Cards. (laughs) (laughs) That's not ready to... That's done, but we're... uh, That feels like a title that might change for SEO. Maybe. I've given them a few. That's fine. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, Well, listen, that's that's publishing, baby. 
That's a long way away. But I, I saw that and I was like, Dayspring by Anthony Oliveira. <laughs> it's almost as though we're about to talk about Strife don't, for four don't hours. Don't tell them my secret. Yeah. Can't copyright a title, baby. So <laughs> you can call it whatever the fuck you want. Yeah, but don't tell people why it's called that. Um, <laughs> well, they'll have to listen to this podcast for all three and a half hours about Strife. Yeah. Before they, There's also you know. a graphic novel called Apocrypha, but we're a few years out on that one. But that's all done. OGNs take a while. So. Yeah. Oh, God. Yeah, they do. Um, I don't think we've even announced who the artist is for that one. I was going to say, do you have an artist attached yeah, yet? Because you didn't when do, it was announced. That's fun. Look at you. Yeah, no, I mean, obviously, I'm not, like, asking for the scoop. I'm just saying, like, you know. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, it took it took a while. We were, it's a, it's a you'll understand when you well, see the Well, it's impressive to sell one without an artist attached. So good on you. It's a, it's been the thing I've been working on since I was... A little baby boy reading about strife. Like it's very much. As soon as you hear what it's about, you're going to be like, "Oh yeah, that's Anthony." <laughs> I mean, I read the PM announcement. Oh when yeah, it was okay, announced, good. So. Yeah. <laughs> and I did think, ah, oh, there you go. There that's, it is. The rest of my Tony life. Tony writing a comic. The same four themes. Yeah. That's yep. How it goes. You know. Listen. Your... Oh please. I mean, look at me. What? Oh, if I if I ever get to write something that people read and it's like, oh wow, it's about like a complicated woman who people think is a bitch. Like shocker. You, you look at. Claremont. We all have our stuff. Claremont you know? has three stories, and he tells them amazingly every time. You know. <laughs> I would love. I would love to have three stories that people know I can tell really well. That right. would be. <laughs> a joy that would be high praise <laughs> before we go i just want to encourage you all to go to patreon.com slash cerebrocast and sign up to join the house of zaladane the five dollar a month tier there will be a monthly bonus episode the first one is coming in the first week of april and i am looking forward to making more content for you guys i also just like candidly it was very encouraging because I wasn't sure I wasn't sure how much I was going to be able to continue this when the quarantine ends. And so some financial incentive is enormously helpful in encouraging me to do all of this research and all of this stuff after hours with my real job. So, you know, I just appreciate the support. There's also a $1 tier if you would like to just throw me a tip, but that does not give you access to the bonus episodes. So it's just $5 if you want the bonus apps. I hate asking people to give me money, but um, that's the gist. And I would appreciate it if you did. So <laughs> you can follow Cerebro on Twitter and Instagram at CerebroCast. You can follow me on Twitter at Dream of Organon or on Instagram at Connor Goldsmith. You can find all of the episodes plus transcripts as I get them up and more are actually coming soon. I know I always say that, but it's actually happening at CerebroCast.com, the official landing page for the podcast. You can also find a link there to the Cerebro fan discord. Please don't bring any bad vibes because it's a pretty chill, fun space. Patrons at the House of Zaladane level will get a private channel on the Discord that is just for Patreon-related chit-chat. You can write in to Cerebro at CerebroCast at gmail.com. Next week's episode will feature Angelique Rocher, host of the Marvel's Voices podcast. She will be coming on to talk about Armando Munoz, better known as Darwin. He's back in a big way in the current comics. He and Sink and Laura are in the vault, and I imagine he's going to be an important character going forward. So I am excited to dig into a somewhat confusing character with all of you so that you know who the hell that guy is. I'm also excited to have Angelique on. So if you have questions for me or Angelique about Darwin, please feel free to send those in. As always, thank you so much for being a really fun group of people to talk to. There's like thousands of you now, which is wild. So I really just appreciate the continued support. And until next time, everybody, Thanks for listening and bye. Bye. X-Men, X-Men.
In the 21st century, evil mutants led by Magneto aim to destroy the world. The only hope is X-Men.